This is episode 21 of Alohomora for January 27th, 2013. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Kat Miller. And our special guest this week is someone whose voice you probably know. He's on quite a few podcasts, including MuggleNet's own MuggleCast. It's Eric Skull. Hey everybody. Hey Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope to have a lot of fun. How long, uh, how long have you been podcasting, Eric Skull? Oh, why do you ask questions to which you already know the answer, Noah Freed? Oh, just for just for our, just for our listening audience, it's been it's been many years. Yes, of course, of course. Well, actually, we celebrated our seventh anniversary of MuggleCast last August, so this would be about seven and a half years of Harry Potter podcasting. Wow, that's crazy. Hey, Harry, working on that potions I say for Monday. Uh, it's due Friday, Ron. What? No, you're pulling my leg. Hey, Harry, doing that I say quite early, aren't you? See, it's not due until next Monday, right, Seamus? Um. I thought it wasn't due until the Monday after next. Well, I already did mine, because it's due Thursday. What are you talking about, Pavati? It's due on Monday. No, no, no. no it is it's definitely due on Thursday. Thursday. It's 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 on Thursday. Thursday. What is going on here? I'm trying to do my charms homework. Hermione, when's that potions essay due? Friday. Next Monday. No, it's due weeks. Hold on. Let me check my calendar from MuggleNet. It has all kinds of important dates, such as future conventions, birthdays, and important events in the wizarding world. Yeah, but what about homework? Ah, here we are. Yes, I thought so. That essay is due... tomorrow. Start 2013 off right with the new MuggleNet fandom calendar. Each month features photos and drawings from various corners of the Harry Potter fanbase, as well as historical dates from all seven Harry Potter novels, and Harry Potter birthdays for characters, actors, and your favorite MuggleNet staff members. Visit MuggleNet.com to preview the calendar and get your own copy today. We had a lot of great discussion last week about our opening of Prisoner of Azkaban, um, a lot of great comments, and uh, actually a reopening of the abuse debate because uh, on the forums, and we'd actually like to kind of end that discussion if we can. I know Rosie's talked to me about it. Um, just this question of was Harry actually abused by the Dursleys? Um, we actually have a comment from the forums. Rosie, would you like to give us that first comment? Sure. Our first comment was from Loomis Knight Three. Um, and it says, I'm from the US and I fully agree with Rosie. I'm sorry, but until JKR tells us that Harry was abused or until we come across 100% foolproof ev- evidence that Harry was abused, I really see this as an exaggeration to get an, a certain point across to the reader. So you guys came up with some quotes that kind of respond to that, didn't you? I did, yeah. The the one that I found is from an interview back in 2000. Um, Joe was at um, a, a writing festival of course, now I completely missed the actual... Oh, Vancouver Writers and Readers Festival. There we go. It was in November of 2000. And she gave an interview to Sinscape Magazine. And this is in reference to Dudley, actually. She says, I like torturing him. You should keep an eye on Dudley. It's probably too late for Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon. I feel sorry for Dudley. I might joke about him, but I feel truly sorry for him because I see him as just as abused as Harry, though probably in a less obvious way. Okay, so, I mean, there's it, right? I mean, she says the word abuse. Um, and applies it to the Dursley's parenting. Rosie, what do you say to that? There have been a lot of comments on the forums this week about the kind of definition of abuse. 
Um, and I think she is talking about a very different kind of abuse than the kind of physical abuse that you guys have been leaning towards in our discussions previously. Noah, did you want to read your quote? Yeah, I want to jump into it. But before I do, Eric, we haven't heard from you. Um, on the question of was Harry actually physically abused by the Dursleys, what would you say um, to that? You mean physical abuse? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, um, I, I, I would definitely uh, side on the, the side of Harry was abused, but it's, it's very, um, it's mental abuse. It's, it yeah. is not, I don't think at any point it became any, anywhere physical where Vernon would hit Harry. I mean, I think the closest you get is the, the physical act of barring Harry in his bedroom, um, you know, in the second bedroom, or physically yeah. relocating Harry to the cupboard under the stairs, you know, childhood. That's the, the most physical, I think I'd say, that the Dursleys ever got with Harry. But that's not to say he wasn't abused verbally, mentally. I think that's, you know, a very stronger case can be made for that. Well, that's that, of course, is the argument, because sometimes that form of abuse is, you know, just as bad, if not worse, than actual physical punishment. I completely um, agree. Um, yeah. But but if it's a question of was Harry physically abused by the Dursleys? No, I don't think so. But okay. um, so we got an email, actually, from someone. Her name is Jessica Curious, Curious, and she sent us a quote. Um, I just remembered this, guys, as we were going through. Whoa. And it's on page 35 of Philosopher's Stone, the UK edition. It says, Dudley was sniffling in the back seat. His father had hit him round the head for holding him up while he tried to pack his television, video, and computer in his sports bag. So mm. isn't that proof right there that the Dursleys have no problem whatsoever hitting their kids? Um, I would say that's more like a slap. I, I mean, I, I, okay, I'd hate to downplay any physical violence that, you know, any child may have encountered. But I, I think the whole hit him round the head, you know, in that scene in Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, it's supposed to convey, you know, this this issue where Vernon was in a, in a hurry to get out the door and he had no patience for his kid. You know, I, I really don't think that, that that it could be said that, that he really hit Dudley a whole lot. Right, right. I don't even think it's really like a full slap, like... It's not like he's been punched in the head or like properly slapped across the face. It's literally he's just had kind of a little clip on the ear kind of thing. Um, but he still definitely hit him, and well, I feel if like I could, if I could bring it around to this to this chapter, and not not to really negate that point because it, it doesn't. But you know, in recent chapters here, Vernon had the opportunity as Harry was storming out. You know, after he had blown up Aunt Marge, Vernon says, "You know, you put her right," and Harry says, "No, you know, she deserved it," and he runs off you know, into the, the sunset with his with his trunk. Vernon could have physically stopped him, especially if you're looking at the, the choreography of the movie, Vernon was standing in front of the, you know, the landing of the stairway, and Harry was on it. And I see that as a great opportunity for Vernon, if he were physical, to restrain Harry. Harry's this little, you know, this little thin, you know, nothing boy. And if Vernon were at all physical, if their abuse was physical in nature, I think Vernon would have physically restrained him. And in that same chapter, Aunt Marge you know, is talking to Harry about his parents in front of him, verbally assaulting his parents. Oh, you know, must have been a criminal, and you can tell by the breed of this boy that he's terrible. You know, having to sit there and endure that that verbal abuse, you know, really caused Harry to flip out. That, I'd say, was a moment of, you know, sort of the most, you know, worst abuse he's seen at Privet Drive, which is, I think, what caused him to run away. But didn't Harry have his wand out, and that's why probably why Vernon didn't hit him? Yeah, wasn't wasn't Vernon scared? Yeah, but that's mm -hmm. just a twig. Vernon doesn't really know what magic can do. Sure, he knows that. Right, which is why he's so scared of it. 
But he's also like, if you just if you were threatened by someone who was just holding a stick at you, you wouldn't necessarily fear, see, um, experience the same amount of fear as you would if someone has a gun. If you've seen that kind of backlash of what that item can do, he would easily be able to go and restrain him. I think at that point. This this is moments after. And, you know, he's blown up Vernon's sister. Like, he probably feels defensive for his family at this point, and he has no idea what to expect because more than a gun where he has some kind of notion of what's going to happen, this is, a, this is, as you say, a stick. Vernon has absolutely no concept of what's going to happen, which makes him even more scared, I think, which is why he doesn't, you know, physically attack Harry. <coughs> you guys are now saying that um, the idea that Vernon is afraid of Harry would stop him being that physical abuser. But Harry doesn't show the same amount of fear that you would expect from someone who has been physically abused by someone throughout the books. He is not afraid of the Dursleys in the same way that you would expect him to be if he was being constantly abused in the way that you guys are suggesting. Th this is true. So yeah, that, that points to a kind of hole in my argument. Um... No, I don't think so, because I think Harry's older now and has a lot more confidence, and he knows that he can use... I mean, here... You know, he even says in the chapter, well, what's the point in I can use more magic because I'm already expelled. So he's not afraid to use magic at this point. He's not afraid to fight back is the way I look at it. Well, let's uh, I, I have one yeah, more. Read your quote, Noah. Yeah, I have one more quote. Maybe you can, you can add a little bit of dimension to the discussion. So this is from the Harry Potter Wizards Collection DVD. Um, and it's an interview between Steve Cloves and J.K. Rowling, and it's it's actually fairly recent, uh, just a few years ago. Steve Cloves, of course, wrote uh, many of the movies. I believe for Order of the Phoenix, he didn't write that movie, if uh, if I'm remembering correctly. But for most of the movies, he wrote them. And of course, as a as a writer, he uh, this interview with J.K. Rowling is really cool because you know she wrote the original text. So this is this is him. There was this part in the script when he was in the cupboard. I Harry, I invented him a spider named Alistair, who he talked to. And he used to nick broken soldiers out of the rubbish bin, and he lined them up on the shelf, this broken army that Dudley had thrown out. J.K. Rowling says, It was such a great image, the broken army. This is Clove speaking again. And he used to talk to them, and the point was that he seemed slightly mad when I wrote the first draft. When Hagrid appeared, you thought he was out of his imagination for a minute, like he had sum like he'd summoned this guy, Rowling. I think that's a fabulous point, and that speaks so perfectly to the truth to the books, because I had it suggested that to me more than once that Harry actually did go mad in the cupboard and that everything that happened subsequently was some sort of fantasy life he developed to save himself. Cloves. No, and that's where, it, that's where it came from. It came from the book. When you read the book, you make it pretty clear that he's an abused boy. Rowling. Totally. Of course he is. Cloves. And so, there's darkness there, and I would go with that. So, looking at that, um, at least in terms of J.K. Rowling's context of what abuse is, Harry is abused. Although, I mean, I feel like this quote actually specifically speaks to, um, quote-unquote, the madness within. Um, this speaks more, I think, to Harry's um, psychological madness and abuse as opposed to the actual physical. Proof of there being actual physical yeah. abuse. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. Um, it's all about mental abuse, verbal abuse, and neglect. I really don't think that the kind of physical aspect comes into it sure that we like we said before there's the the frying pan incident and there are little little clips around the air and things but yeah. nothing that would be properly harmful in the way of physical abuse to a child the the other yeah. thing to consider i guess is that dumbledore put harry with his you know with his family i really think that he didn't leave him there to to dry he must have known a little bit about what was going on and 
you know, I really don't think he would have left Harry in no matter how strong the blood tie is between Petunia and Lily with a family that would physically assault him on a on a sort of a regular basis. One would hope anyway. But well, he does leave him with them and they, you know, verbally assault him all the time and physically, you know, move him into a cupboard and all that other stuff, which is terrible and actually brings more to light about Dumbledore, but yeah. Um, and really, he's only doing it to save Harry from getting an ego. I, I really don't quite understand. Um, but there is abuse there. It's just I, I don't think it's physical either. All right. Um, well, well, the frying pan the cat referenced was uh, in Chamber of Secrets, and Harry actually had to literally dodge uh, this frying pan that Petunia would have hit him with um, for punishment. But, mm-hmm. you know, hearing all you guys speak and, and these comments, uh, I think I've, I have to change my own opinion because um, – I want. I want to agree. I don't think there's too much physical, actually physical abuse. It's definitely more on the weak. You know, Noah, e- weak. Ignoring. You know, no, it's <laughs> it's not weak. I'm just I'm reinforming my opinion because you know I think it shows. It it really shows when you can actually take in what people are saying and change your opinion. And I I want to do that to some degree. I think there's definitely aspects of physical abuse, but I'm going to go on the record and say that it is not. Um, it is not all that because if we were reading a real story about physical abuse, it would be. A, a lot more in your face, and we'd get that, and we'd feel Harry's pain. But well, obviously, it's know. not all physical abuse. I think the point was that he is at some point physically abused. Maybe not on a regular basis, but I still believe that he definitely. Well, I'd, I'd even say I'd even see uh, the fact that Ripper chases Harry up into a tree for several hours. That that's physical abuse in my mind. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, putting Harry in the cupboard, depriving him of food is physical abuse. Right. It's um, neglect right. more than, than physical it is. Abuse. Yeah, more than different definition. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, okay. I think that's that's true too. So, I mean, we're not trying to downplay abuse here. Like Harry is abused, no. but unlike Road Dahl, whose books, like um, James and the Giant Peach, for instance, or Matilda, have, I would say, greater instances of physical abuse. Yeah. Um, maybe okay. not yeah. Matilda, but I, I just think they no, definitely the, Matilda with the chokey. The ants, yeah, the chokey. Exactly. They're throwing kids out of windows for God's sakes. Yeah. That's the ants and the uncles and the teachers. Um, although, shout out to Pam Ferris who was Miss Trenchable, um, and Aunt Marge. But um, that's actually one of the comments that we've had on our main site whoa. by uh, Leo Morris. Yeah. yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> so, so I say at this point we leave the abuse discussion to the forums. We'll let yeah. the fans continue to. Um, fight it out. I mean, the discussion that's already going on there is crazy. People are pulling stuff from all over the place. So if you want to join in the discussion and have your point heard, head yeah. over to the forums. I, and to be honest, guys, I think we've we've beaten this one to death. Um, ha ha, pun just, intended. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Um, and it's terrible. We don't condone abuse on any record. But um, in any case, yeah, go to the forums if you want to continue this debate. And we, it might come up kind of like the desk pig comes up on occasion. But right. I, I would this consider, I, I just, I guess in closing, in my closing, if I can add a sort of closing remarks, even though I haven't been following this debate in your previous Certainly. episodes, um, but, you know, just keep in mind the role of the Dursleys throughout the entire series, um, you know, to kind of guide Harry along. And not that there can be any positive to physical abuse necessarily, but as a result of his uh, abuser, abusings from the Dursleys, Harry grows to be a very leveled, uh, modest, you know, boy who cares a lot about, you know, everybody's opinion. And this leads him to recruit people for Dumbledore's army and treat them all with respect. And, you know, all of these insecurities that Harry feels as a result of being relegated to a cupboard actually grow to make him into sort of a better leader, Um, which is not to say that, you know, the abuse is good. But I'm just saying, you know, to keep in mind, too, 
just the overall role of the Dursleys in the in the series. Um, yeah, to be a hero who overcomes adversity, you've got to have the adversity to overcome. Right. Well exactly. said. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so on a slightly lighter note, we had lots of other discussion <laughs> on our forums this week, um, and this comment comes from Have a Biscuit Potter on, on our main site. Um, and it says, I would have loved it if you had mentioned the pocket sneaker scope that Ron sends to Harry for his birthday. Joe uses it to foreshadow Scabbers actually being Pettigrew. Ron says it kept lighting up at dinner last night. Um, Ron blames this on the fact that Fred and George had put beetles in Bill's soup. But I find it more likely that it is the, uh, that it is reacting to the presence of Pettigrew in his animagus form. I think it's hilarious that the twins were dropping beetles in Bill's soup. Too bad one of them wasn't Rita Skeeter. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought about that after the fact that we um, kind of missed or for some reason didn't bring up the sneakoscope, but I I definitely agree that that's what it's doing with the foreshadowing. So, so do you think I'll it's th- always, like, the only time it ever goes off is because of Scabbers being Pettigrew? Because I'm, I'm sure that, like, there are other examples of it going off because of the Beatles in the soup or because of using Errol when he wasn't supposed to, all that kind of thing. This is why it's great about Joe, Joe's writing, if I, can, if I can just add in here, that, uh, you know, we get this item that suspicion or doubt is cast on it from day one as to whether or not it works, you know, but but you can treat it, and, you know, throughout the examples in the books, even he has the snakescope for a long time, um, you know, you can treat each and every one of those examples as, as being proof that it actually does work. For instance, you know, um, the presence of scabbers. So I, mm-hmm. I just really like going through every time the sneakoscope goes off to really try and go back and figure out why it's going off, treating it as if it isn't broken. Definitely. It's kind of like a, a piece of dramatic irony, like the, the readers know something that Harry and the rest of them don't. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This is the obligatory genius moment right here <laughs> of the show. <laughs> saying. But if it was, if it was Pettigrew, um, shouldn't it be buzzing all the time? Maybe just it happens when he's having a particularly malicious thought, maybe? Or when he's around. I think it's only when he's nearby. Yeah. Or when he's maybe being most human. I mean, being a rat for 12 years, I think you would probably lose some of your kind of qualities. You'd become the rat almost. But when you're, if he was like listening into conversations or doing something that was particularly human while he was being the rat, I think that's kind of the moments where it shows up. That's a good point. We know he was listening to the conversation because they were talking about Sirius Black at dinner, weren't they? And that's when he started losing hair. When he when he found yeah. out, right. Um, so there's that. But uh, but just a, another question: How does the sneakoscope even know? Um, it's magic. Magic. It's not alive. Magic. It's magic. Don't just say enchantments because that's impossible. There must be. <laughs> it's not alive, Noah. That's, Wizarding that's tech. That's right. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> it's like the uncertainty principle. To bring, to bring science into it or physics. It's the uncertainty principle. You know, the sneakoscope can only tell you that something is amiss. It can't tell you what's amiss. So how it yeah. gets that information is kind of, I don't want to say a moot point, but it's like the, uh, the rememberal, you know? Mm-hmm. It can tell you right. uh, that you forgot something, but can't tell you what you forgot. It's just another yeah. one of those devices that's supposed to be ironic. All these little ironic, clever devices that are actually devices that you can use. Um... But yeah, we go into a lot of physics on the show and about how these things are actually made, and we have no answers, but I'm always willing to ask the questions. Um, You're always trying to point them out that they're alive. <laughs> I was just going to say, he likes to ask if everything's alive. Yeah. So we need to make I'm, you a shirt with this that says that. Well, I think I might be moving on that, too. I think it's, it's 
there's a potentiality that they're not alive, and that's just magic, but I'll get to that later in the chapter discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so one of our other fairly heavy discussions that was going on in our forums this week was the idea of equating ugliness with evilness. Um, so this comment is from Firebolt, and it says, One of the most good-looking people in the book is the worst, Voldemort. The whole thing when we see him in Memories as Tom is that he is both good-looking and, when he wants to be, ordinary. A terrifying combination. I disagree with the message too. If anything, it says that a bunch of misfits, as Hagrid calls them, are the heroes. Yeah, but but Firebolt, what happens when when Tom Riddle gets more evil? What happens to him? He gets kind of ugly. He does, but I still think he was evil. I mean, even when he was good-looking, he was a pretty bad dude when he the murder of hepzibah smith um for instance he was still a youth working at borgen and burks and right. yeah but I, yeah. I think uh, it doesn't necessarily get rid of the ugly equals evil debate because if if evil is actually you know choices versus nature um if it's actually choices instead of nature as as tom riddle makes certain choices he becomes more evil in my opinion and he becomes uglier and that seems to fit in the ugly equals evil debate of the series which is that all of the kind of evil or devilish characters are ugly or fat or dark or horse-faced to some degree. Okay, well, let's go back to some of our comments because we've got some brilliant ones here that kind of all work off each other. And we've got one from (laughs) the Green Flame Torch that actually goes straight into what you were saying just then, Noah, which says, think of our heroes, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Dumbledore, Sirius, Lupin, Ginny, Luna, Neville, Fred, George, etc. Ugly characters never get to be the heroes in media. Why is that? are not conventionally good-looking people doomed to be evil human beings just because of their genetics? Well, Hermione has really big front teeth. Um, Lupin's a werewolf, who's pretty ugly when he turns into a werewolf, and especially if you're judging him by the Prisoner of Azkaban uh, visual effects, very ugly werewolf. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they're not necessarily... You, you can't necessarily draw that line so quickly. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and we've actually got another comment from Lupin Patronus, who we've had on the show a couple of times. Um, and it says, Harry's got knobbly knees, untidy hair, and looks rather gawky overall by Ro- by Rowling's description. He grows into his features a bit by Order of the Phoenix, but he never becomes stunningly attractive. Hermione never tames her hair or takes an overwhelmingly overwhelming interest in her outward appearance. And Ron remains lanky and awkwardly built throughout the series. As to some of the others, the Green Flame Torch mentioned, we've got Lupin, who appears older than his age, Sirius, who is gaunt, Neville is rather stout until the very last book, and until he loses weight due to the stress of his situation, and Fred and George are short, shorter than Ron, and stocky. So by the actual descriptions within the books, they are not the kind of good-looking characters that everyone thinks they are due to their good-looking actors in the movies. True, but I still feel like words like knobbly knees, untidy hair... Um, you know, and these other these other characters who are defined by their relatively cute or slightly abnormal descriptions, but they also have the sense of um, innocence about them too, or, or childishness. These are all also good characters, so it's it's different. Maybe in the movies, these characters are a bit more like physically attractive because it's it's all visual. But in the text, I think it's kind of a similar. Joe's doing a very similar thing that the movies did, just in a different way because you have these descriptions of characters that are gentle, and you know, give me a character who is. Who is big and scary looking? Who you know? You know, I'm, I'm, I was thinking in my head. Oh wait, wait. What about Hagrid? Hagrid. But even Hagrid <laughs> has that nice look to him that we instantly get. But do you, you know, generally anybody who we see that looks potentially, you know, dark and mysterious, um, especially physically, they turn out to be evil. I mean, except for except for Snape, he's that he's that one 
that one dude in the middle who kind of goes against the whole. He's still kind of a jerk, though. He is still kind of a jerk. Um, Okay, then. No, I give you one word, and that word is Malfoy. You see, I don't find. I don't find. I don't think he's that attractive. Um, I don't think he's that evil. Yeah, I don't think he's that evil either. How about Lucius Malfoy, though? Oh? Who is very evil, but is also fairly good looking in his descriptions. Well, here, here, we have a we have a quote from Hufflepuff Skeen on the forums, which I think will actually maybe help with this discussion. And look, I said the username right this time. Woo. <laughs> it says... <laughs> That's a great mix, a great mesh, Hufflepuff Skeen. I like that. Yeah. It says, I'm fascinated by the discussion here on the forums. It actually connects with something that really sparked my pondering while rereading these chapters. Abnormality versus normality. Vernon is very concerned about not revealing Harry's abnormality to Aunt Marge, and Harry promises to act like I'm normal and everything to get Vernon to sign the Hogsmeade permission slip. Normal is such a problematic term because it presupposes a standard by which everything is judged. The Dursleys are judged harshly by wizard normal, and Harry is judged harshly by muggle slash Dursley normal. The normality abnormality is relative. The hosts have commented many times on the fact that Dursleys just want to be normal. They want their normal, not Alohomora muggle normal, and certainly not Harry's normal. We may judge those aspects of the Dursleys normal, such as emotionally abusing Harry or stereotyping weirdness, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that our judgment is based on our own normal. Perhaps the debates on abuse or stereotyping above come down to perspective in a similar way to the idea of normal. That's an interesting comment. As, as an English major, we kind of deal with looking at texts and the fact of, you know, getting out of our own heads to really talk about something. And of course, you can always make the argument that we each as individuals have um, our own ways of looking at things. We're subjective. But at, at least the whole point of the English major for me at, at college is to try and look things as objectively as possible. Um, and you do that best by noting repetitions. And the ugly evil strand in the Harry Potter series continues throughout. And that, that thing is, I can objectively say that. Um, and that, you know, then when I make the the observation or, you know, kind of conclusion about what that means, that is, that is highly subjective. But, you know, I'm still, I'm still rooted in that original repetition. So I, I feel like the fact that ugly and evil is continued throughout just makes me think more and more that there is some kind of normal as Hufflepuff scheme that J.K. Rowling herself subscribes to, and that's intensified in the book. Um, and that is making, again, that's kind of aligned with this cultural mass media thing of, in our, in our own society, we tend to demonize those who are ugly, um, and that seems to come across in the books. I mean, that's very true, but I still think that this comment is very valid. I mean, everybody's idea of quote-unquote normal is very different, and I feel like we have to take that into account when talking about, you know, the who thinks who is normal. Just kind of re-evaluating this based on the argument I've heard here. Um, you know, it's true that something like knobbly knees isn't as unattractive as being described as being toad-faced, like Umbridge. <laughs> right, um, very true. But then part of me says, well, Umbridge also makes her own choices. But that's also not part of this argument, which is to say that she's evil because she's toad-faced, right? Or evil and ugly are, are, are still the same thing. But I think, biblically, isn't it said that when the devil comes back, and, and forgive me, you know, I don't necessarily know the passage but when when the devil is is said to return he will seek influence like political influence political power maybe this is just pop culture's uh spin on it but essentially he's going to be good looking and attractive the way young tom riddle was and you know he will gain power through his being attractive yes um that parallel just reminds me of young tom riddle 
um, because you're yeah. going to you're going to put your vote on Tom Riddle. You know, you're not going to put your vote on Voldemort, who's who's ugly, has no nose, you know, and has kind of betrayed his own soul. But when he was growing and his let's say his true form was not quite you know th- there yet, um, he was extremely attractive. Very true. It's the Snow White poisoned apple principle. You know, it, it may look fine, but on the inside it's rotten. Oh, so, so Eric, you're saying uh, in, this, in these books we have to be skeptical of t- attractive people, and that is the, and that kind of message goes against the, yeah, the other characters. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Rosie said it better, but, but also, like, that's the thing. If you're attractive, you know, even in the books, you, you can abuse that um, the way young Vol- Voldemort did. Um, you know, in in order to to seek to influence people and to get your own way and that sort of thing, it's almost like the prettier people are the more dangerous and the more evil. Right. But I don't know. That's not that's neither here nor there. I don't know where that falls in the argument, except to say that, you know, again, young Tom Riddle was very pretty, and he was still. Extra- I I don't think he necessarily got more evil. To be perfectly honest, um, no. when he's st- when he started losing his nose and all that stuff. I just think, oh no, I I agree. I think he was bad to the core the whole time. So you disagree with Dumbledore that it is our choices, Harry, that truly define us. All of his choices were made. It's the actions that hadn't been made yet when he chose to alter his own form. Yeah, he made choices when he was young that were still evil. Yeah, but would you say his root evilness stayed pretty consistent throughout his entire life, or did he become more evil over time as he learned and as he, you know, actually physically made Horcruxes? Because that would be. My, that's my take, honestly. Like each person throughout his choice, once they make certain choices, you become that. And especially as his soul was uh, destroyed, he became more evil. So it was kind of more of a process. And then again, this is, was created specifically by choices, not by any inherent value he had, which I think is one of the core beliefs of the series. Didn't Joe say that the only thing that would have made a difference in his life is if his mother hadn't died? So I feel I like think she said that. Yeah. So I feel like. He was doomed. He's doomed from the beginning. I mean, from the minute his mother died giving birth to him. Right. He, he was doomed. He was evil. Simple as that. All right. There does seem to be quite an emphasis on blood in the series then, after all, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Very much. That, that's, that's just weird to me because it flies in the face of the choice thing. That it does, That is yeah. so also consistent. You know what I mean? Yeah, it does. And I, I agree with that. There are There is that inconsistency where because he is a descendant of Slytherin and his his uncle and his aunts and all them and his mother were all crazy, like completely crazy, um, especially his mother, you know, which was crazy in love. At least that was kind of a positive thing. But because of his blood and the fact that his mother wasn't there to raise her, he's pretty much doomed to fail. Um now, it's not to say, it's still not to say he didn't necessarily have a choice. You know how that's a little different? I still think, though, that, no, it doesn't really fly in the, in the seat of the, you know, our choice is Harry, because Voldemort didn't have to make those horcruxes. Just because he was evil doesn't mean he had to go to the length that he did. And those were his choices. So you think his choices were just a um, kind of... Because he was the person that he was. Yeah, I mean... And they were going to happen. It was kind of destined to happen. He could have spent the rest of his life just being kind of a jackass. You know, like an <laughs> evil, kind of rude dude. You know, like torturing animals. And, I mean, trust me, that's that's a bad guy. But to go to the lengths that he did, those were the choices he made. And therefore, he completely corrupted himself. 
Yeah, but Kat, if you're telling me that it was his, in his nature to do this and that it was going to happen and it was f- indoctrinated by fate, I can't blame him. I can't blame the guy because he didn't have a choice, honestly. Yeah, he definitely had a choice. There's there's a complete difference, I think, between between being kind of rude and awful and being evil. Voldemort was evil. It's the choice of the three brothers, isn't it? The the story of the three it brothers is. at the end where you either face death you by killing, you face death by hiding, or you face death by, you know dwelling on on those that you've lost and yeah, you guys is have already elder wand rather than you guys have just told me that he doesn't have a choice because of his blood and now you're telling now you're telling me he does have a choice he I'm doesn't have confused. a choice he he can never be a fully good person he'll never be happy he'll never love that doesn't make him evil he has a choice in how he acts he chose to be evil hmm. but to go back to the the kind of ugly versus evil discussion and um everything we were talking about before i think a large amount of it comes into the idea of stereotyping. Anyone who's ever read anything by Dickens, for example, will be able to see, you know, he uses people's physicality and people's looks to reflect their kind of inner characters, not necessarily in the way that we would expect from, you know, the the modern world around us, that we wouldn't expect all, you know, fat people to be horrible in the same way that we did with the, the Dursleys. But it's that idea of caricaturing these people to the point of absurdity that makes them so different from our normal character of Harry in terms of everyone's kind of normal, not necessarily the Dursleys. Right. True. But he is he's the average Joe character who is faced by crazy people all around him. And that's why we get so many of these characters that just seem so absurdly different visually. Well, Rosie, it's interesting you brought up Dickens because he was actually paid um, by the word that he wrote. And when he wrote, he was trying, he was writing for an audience, of course, and he, and he wanted to excite people, and especially during a time in, in England where different groups are being uh, marginalized and joked about. Um, I think that's why he made certain stereotypical characters. That's why it's always been done, to make that final sale. Um, and in a way, I feel like J.K. Rowling selling to children with these, uh, by creating these funny characters that are evil, because it's, you know, it's, it's a heuristic. We can easily jump up on it and understand what's going on and kind of see the whole story lay out. But it has this other effect of making us view, you know, non-attractive people in our own life as, as not so cool. So that's that's what the Green Flame Torch, I think, was talking about. Um, we don't have to get back into it, but I think we're just going to have a kind of fundamental disagreement about that one for a while. And that's that's fine. Okay. That's what we do on this show. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. <laughs> Everyone is entitled to their own opinions. We just like to talk about them first. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, Rosie, I think you'll actually like this next comment. Uh, it's from the forums from Jess Fudd. She okay. says, I'm only a few minutes into the episode, referring to episode 20. Um, so I don't have anything of real substance to say, but I love, love that you guys um, did what I do in my head all the time. Assume that Rosie is part of the magical world just because she's British. I guess in my head, Great Britain is inherently magical, and so is Rosie. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> of course I am. I own a wand, after all. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> And you've been to Hogwarts, like, how many times now? Like, 12? Oh, it's my second home. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) However, Jess Fudd did later on come back with something a bit more of substantial to say. Um, (laughs) And she joins in our discussion about Errol. Um, And it says, Errol seems to be like a, uh, seems to me like a proud owl, sort of grandfatherly. And I feel like he's, he'd confidently take any parcel that he would have as a younger owl. I can imagine Molly or Ginny asking, is that going to be too hard for Errol to carry? And Errol definitely sticking out his leg to say, I'm not dead yet. 
Maybe I think that because I have a grandfather who's in his 80s who still refuses to admit that he can't do all the things he used to. Also, the way Errol gets annoyed by Pig, I feel like he's an old school owl. The way old men or veterans look at young people and tell them to pull their pants up or (laughs) tell them what it was like to work with their hands. I can definitely see that. Errol is that kind of stalwart character who will do whatever he wants to and do whatever he can try to do, even if he's not necessarily quite able to do it in the way he used to. I wish, uh, does anyone have any, like, lines from the book or quotes? Because I just, maybe I'm not getting a full sense of Errol's character, but I feel like I don't remember, I remember him always kind of struggling along. Are there any, um, any great lines? I I mean, I can't really expect you guys to call them up out of thin air, but um, maybe if some fans want to post in the comments some, like, areas where we get Errol's character, because, you know, where is this kind of veteran guy? I I think we kind of just always see him as, you know, flopping over, sad, kind of yeah kind of out of breath but i see that like i think too it comes across in the type of owl that he is because he's um well a tawny owl correct so mm-hmm. he's got kind of that flat face and i don't know i i thought the comment was great jess fudd i'm totally with you on that one well i'm i'm, I'm gonna need to see some, see some evidence before i can get behind it um, i think right. we'll see the evidence <laughs> when we get to to the next book with pig so we'll, we'll talk right. about it that in a few episodes time. I think definitely the the two owls are the two creatures with the most personality uh excluding Crookjanks um are Pig and Hedwig you know is the one who nips Harry on the fingers when she doesn't get fed or when she wants more food. Hedwig's got the personality. You know Errol I would have to say is probably more scarce in the details on on Errol. Um mm. but perhaps when Pig is zooming around a, the train compartment and Errol is there like what the hell is going on? Like yeah. maybe <laughs> maybe there there's some kind of grandfatherly tuck your you know pants in sort of thing. Um but you're right, I, I can't recall any specific quotes on that. And, however, I do think it's very interesting insight, or that anybody has this insight to an owl. Um, it's pretty yeah. cool. It's funny you should say that Hedwig has the most uh, most personality other than Pig, because um, we've got another comment from Puff and Proud on the main site, and it says, Hedwig seemed like too proper and picky a lady to have a relationship with Errol. This is going back to a discussion we had last week. Um, she was probably saving herself for some studly great horned owl. <laughs> that's great and that's a response to our title for last week uh errol and hedwig sitting in a tree oh um, my god yeah so and now and now i totally want to launch into a destruct uh sorry a discussion about how hedwig reflects femininity in the series but i don't think i should go there you should probably do that as an app special feature so that the yeah. fans who haven't downloaded our app yet um can do that and they can listen to you talk about that that sounds like a good idea perfect. i think i will do that cat perfect <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into um, our recap on the special feature last week, which was Potter more in-depth. We have one comment, and I think that that quite honestly speaks to the lackluster amount of information we got from Pottermore. So the one comment we have is from I Hate Spiders on the forums. It says, something I've wondered about with Aunt Marge is how many wizards has she unknowingly come in contact with? I wonder if Colonel Fubster is a wizard, but Rowling said in a chat that he is a muggle. Maybe he has a housekeeper or gardener that is magical and made Marge's glass break the way, the same way it did when Marge insulted Harry. I could see an adult wizard doing something that would get her to stop assaulting the boy who lived without actually hurting her. Someone who just wanted to learn a little more about the muggle world firsthand, so they took a job with Fubster. I think it's a little bit of a stretch to presuppose that all of these muggles that we know all have wizards among them. Of course, we only know of muggles that 
are around wizards because the book focuses on the wizards. But just remember that the wizarding population in Britain is supposed to be very small um, in comparison. And wizards in general are very a small community compared to the large muggle world. Uh, I don't think it's right to say that, you know, Marge needed to be ever approached by another wizard besides Harry Potter. Right. No, I would agree. This is all coming from the idea that Marge's glass breaking, she, when she said that um, the, the glass has broken before um, within this, the kind of discussion that we see within that chapter, where Harry has definitely broken that glass. It's just because she's got a you know strong grip, like she says, glasses do break occasionally when people are holding them. And Marge is likely to break some more than other people without wizard intervention. Yeah, so there we go. That's the recap from the special feature last week. Short and sweet. Hooray. <laughs> so anyway, here's the question of the week from last uh, episode. I'm just going to read it real quick. Early on in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, we find out that the Weasley family has won a wonderful prize of 700 galleons through a daily profit drawing. We also learned that they spend most of this grand fortune on a trip to Egypt. You know, maybe they could have spent it on some, some food or a better house, but they didn't do that. So we started to wonder, why would so much money be needed, given the way Wizardkind is able to travel, seemingly so cheaply? Our question is this. What are the expenses of wizarding travel? Could a lot of this money actually go to traveling from the UK to Egypt? And as the magical community travels about the world, what sort of international guidelines might they have to follow when traveling into other countries? So... I really like this question because, you know, I, I don't know too much about wizarding travel in general because we know there are many ways to do it, but, you know, how do you do it with a huge family? Side along apparition, and then what kind of restraints are there when you do that? So here's the first comment from Lily Carnation Rose. Hmm. According to the HP lexicon, intercontinental apparition is quite difficult, so that particular mode of transport might have been off the table for the Weasleys. Even if Molly and Arthur could do it, I imagine they wouldn't want to risk their kids getting hurt. I'd be willing to bet a lot of that money went towards lodging and food. Two, it must be hard keeping a gaggle of teenage boys fed. Mmm, <laughs> falafel. <laughs> All right, so that the comment kind of switched <laughs> quickly, but uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know of a side along apparition, but you know we've seen the the woes of splinching, so it's possible that they didn't do that. But then how how do we think they got across? Um, here's another comment from J N A. Perhaps there is a ministry-approved wizarding travel agent that would set up a port key for a cost, or maybe there is an international service akin to the night bus. Both options would likely cost a fair amount to transport all of the Weasleys. As to what guidelines there would be for wizards traveling internationally, I think they would reflect the muggle guidelines in each country, as this is often dependent on the culture and attitudes of a nation, something that is largely shared by wizards and muggles. Yeah, what are your guys' thoughts about that, just in terms of restrictions and, and honest, quite honestly, how they got to Egypt? Um... You know, for me, I, I think it's important to remember that the wizarding community, again, is very, very, very small compared to the muggle community. So international travel, we haven't heard about it, obviously, in, in you know, maybe in the, the Harry Potter um, book series. But, you know, the Ministry of Magic, of all of magic, is in Britain, and they get away with it because the population isn't that big. So maybe it's just something that hasn't really been... Mm as strongly regulated in all these different countries, I think. Like, But I like the question because here, you know, it's like, well, you can get from one place to the other with a port key like nothing. You know, setting it up, maybe there's a little fee. But it seems like, you know, in terms of paying for jet fuel, you know, you don't need to worry about it. Harry's never had to pay a toll to use the flu network. Right. So I, I think it is interesting how they spent that money. I think it's a, a worthwhile question to ask, but I don't really know the answer to it. 
Well, haven't we haven't we found on, on, uh, in the comments that isn't flu powder kind of uh, expensive? Yeah, it's meant to be quite rare and expensive. That? Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so that, yeah, because that's, that's something there. So that makes me think that other ways might also be expensive. But, you know, to these comments, I think it's more likely that they spent all that money on merchandise there or different activities. Yeah, I still think, however they got there, the travel was probably cheap. I mean, it would be cheaper than if they were wizards in the U.S. trying to get to Egypt. Yeah. Because I mean, at least they're on the same, I mean, not the same continent, but mass of land, so to say. Aren't there uh, aren't there magic carpets as well? Isn't that a real thing in the Harry Potter series? Yeah, that is that is a real thing. That is. They're not sanctioned thing. in the UK though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not for family travel. You'd essentially right? you'd essentially travel by broom until you get to the 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 border and thirty thousand feet above the border, you'd switch to a magic carpet. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, there are so many different ways to travel by thrustroll, dragon, um, broom, flu. Apparition. But we know that when we um, get to the Thestrals later on, we hear that Dumbledore uses them for long journeys. So, yeah, maybe there is some other kind of long journey travel. Something we, we don't, don't know, know about, about probably. But then, yeah. yeah, I guess the question is, if travel is cheap, I agree that travel should be probably cost them next to nothing. How do they actually spend 7,000 galleons in Egypt? Especially with Bill probably having a house to stay in since he works and lives there. Yeah. Right. Though it might just be like a small apartment because he'll be on his own or with friends. You know, that's a weird thing. This is maybe a detraction, but how do wizards deal with a small apartment? Well, they put a, you know, they put charms on it so it's bigger on the inside, right? That's true. <laughs> you just probably, they, they could probably make an airport hangar size. Uh, <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> hmm. So maybe they're just really frivolous. No, that's not true because that's not the Weasleys. Yeah. The Weasleys? I mean, they do use some of the money to buy that's Ron true. Wand. Which I can't wait to talk about, by the way. Seven, s- yeah. seven galleons, yeah, right? Mm. Right, and one more comment from Rose Lumos. I guess the bigger question is if the magical, magical community is recognized by the British government, if you are a Muggle Brit and plan to travel to Egypt, you would need to get a passport and a visa through the government, which would recognize you as a citizen. Are wizards legally citizens? I can only really speak for the United States, in which upon your birth you get a social security number. From then on, you report to the government every year to file taxes. Does the same go for wizards? Do they get a formal birth certificate from the government? Or is there another legal system through the Ministry of Magic that tracks the population? This is well, an interesting question, because if you're if you're muggle-born, of course you get a social security um, card, you know, right? because you think you're a muggle for the first 11 years. In the U.S., not here. Okay, that's, that's fair. <laughs> but, uh... I mean, remember back in Deathly Hollows, they have everybody on on some kind of books. So, yeah, I think you know for the Snatchers, right? I I think that it is the Ministry that would have kind of um, birth wizarding births. There's probably a wizarding births and death department, um, in the same way that you know the Muggle government has a department that would give off birth certificates and things. Um, Except it's in the Department of Mysteries, and they it's a bunch of wizards sitting around a table. Can we bring them back? No, it's no, actually no. Three, it's three old ladies with thread, is what it is. Right. <laughs> the fates, yeah. In in terms of the needing to be a British citizen, citizen to travel to Egypt, um, if you were traveling through Muggle transport, then sure. Like if you were trying to get on a plane or something. Um, but I'm guessing that the ministry would have ways of getting you, I won't say like a fake passport, but like a passport that would pass as a Muggle passport. Um, oh, how interesting. But I think that there must be some kind of other way of traveling 
would bypass kind of muggle airports and things. Rosie, are you suggesting the, the black market in the muggle world is run by the Ministry <laughs> of Magic? Maybe. Maybe it's run by Death Eaters. <laughs> you could always confund your local TSA agent. Oh, that's probably that's true, true yeah. too. Or like transfigure something so that it looks like a passport. Exactly. Um, that about ends the uh, discussion of the question of the week. Good. So then let's jump into the chapters for this week, which are chapters three and four, The Night Bus and The Leaky Cauldron. Chapter three. The Night Bus. Man, can I just say Michael Harley, like doing these little intros before the chapters? Great. I love this guy. Yeah. Hey, you fans, do you love this guy? This guy's great. Yeah, he's pretty great. Thanks, Michael. This is cool. Thank you so much. You should stick stick around. You're not even here, but I hear your voice. <laughs> anyway, jumping into chapter three. So as we know from last time, Harry has just left the Dursleys in a storm. He blew up his aunt, and he's going anywhere. He doesn't care where. He, th- he thinks he might get expelled from Hogwarts, but he doesn't care. He's pretty badass right now. <laughs> um, and there's one line on page 30 where he's talking about, you know, what? how can I explain myself to the Muggle police? I've got... I've got all this magic stuff with me. I'm carrying my wand. Um, and I thought that was really funny. What would Harry actually do in that situation? Or what, what would any of us do if we're caught with all of this magic stuff? He'd be forced to... Well, he doesn't know how to confund or alter memories. I have no idea. Lie? Would he have gone rogue? Well, there's the that's what the Muggle Liaison Office in the Ministry of Magic does. They step in for people like that. He could say he's a magician. <laughs> he could <laughs> But then again, you know, he is a 13-year-old kid. They'll probably just think he's messing around. Take him back to his parents, slash the Dursleys. Right, probably. That's true. I just keep thinking that in, in this section, Harry's kind of decided that he's gone rogue to some degree. He ar- already thinks he's being expelled from Hogwarts and the Ministry's after him. So who knows what he could have been capable of if somebody tried to attack him. He had crazy eyes. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. I just imagine it in my hand. Do you really think that he's not worried at this moment, Noah. You're saying that he's all badass and he's just going to go and <laughs> attack whoever comes near him. But I think he's literally <laughs> panicking at this point. He's This is the darkest moment for him that we've seen in the books, really, other than the adrenaline-fueled fights against Voldemort that he's been through. Oh, sure. I'm just thinking that because it's so such a stressful moment, what could he be brought to potentially? Um, well, you notice at the bottom of page 31, it says Harry shivered. So I feel like that right there is the adrenaline leaving him. Because when you are kind of coming down off an adrenaline high, you tend to get cold. So I feel like right there sure. at the bottom of page 31 is kind of where it hits him. And he's like, oh, F, what am I going to do now? Like, now what? <laughs> I'm screwed. But also, you know, he's outside at night in England. It's cold. <laughs> yes, but it's also, what, July? Still going to be cold. Yeah, but not. I don't think it's going to be cold enough for him to be shivering. Maybe not. So again, on page 30, there, there's another line. There was a funny prickling on the back of his neck that made Harry feel like he was being watched. And of course, we know this is happening once uh, this big black dog is approaching Harry. The, Wait, the dog what, what book are you using? That you're getting He's using pages? English version. Oh, I was going to say, this is British on page, version. I was going to say it's on page 33 in my book. All right, so for, for everyone, for all intents and purposes, I'm using the UK edition because this is the true text. Let me just be clear. This is the true text of the Harry Potter series. They're exactly the same. No, they're not. Except for there's a few no, words. things. There are words in here that I've never even seen before in my entire life. I didn't even know they were in the English language. <laughs> <laughs> but she used them. It's like I'm actually reading the true Harry Potter books. You have no idea what I'm experiencing. Anyway, on page 30, 
It says, there was a funny prickling on the back of his neck. Um, and then there's another line, he sensed rather than heard it. So this got me thinking, and I think I've brought this up before. Here's Harry's spidey sense again. He can sense that there's something around him. Is this his natural ability coming into play? Or is it because he is, uh, because he's magic? Because he's magical, he's a hypersensitivity to the world around him. Are you saying that he's been bit by a magical spider? Sorry, no, I, just had, no. I had to take your role for a minute. Maybe it was I, Alistair in his cupboard. That's right. I would prefer <laughs> to call it Wizzy sense. How's that? His wizard sense instead of spidey Didn't sense. Didn't we call it his scar sense before? Oh, yes, we did. Scar sense. That's but but scar point. sense only works with Voldemort because yeah. he oh, right. feels the horcrux around. This so is, wizzy sense. This Is this his wizzy sense or is this na- Harry's natural ability inherited by his parents that if he wasn't a magic person, he would have anyway? To be honest, I think it's his fictional sense. It's the fact that he is a character in a book that needs to have some kind of progression. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what true. You, what did you just say? And also, like, <laughs> anyone, you know, I can almost always tell when somebody's staring at me. Yeah, it's a common idea that, or, you know, that your ears are burning when someone's talking about you. Right, exactly. Well, let me just... Well, well, what about all those phrases about how, you know, muggles don't notice things? I think if you're a witch or a wizard and you have magic in you, you have this ability because of magic to sense everything more deeply. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe because you sense things more deeply, you're capable to do magic. But in any in any sense, I think this wizzy sense is a real thing. Um, <laughs> That's the best word. I'm sorry. <laughs> so eventually, Harry is confronted by this dog, or he sees it because he casts Lumos. Um, because at this point, he's casting magic spells this way, left and right, because he doesn't care what happens to him, because <laughs> he's gone rogue. And he sees the dog, but then there's a blinding light. He moves back, using his wizzy sense. I don't know how he figured it out. And the night bus comes down. The line is, a second later, a gigantic pair of wheels and headlights had screeched to a halt exactly where Harry had just been lying. So my question to all of you, if had his spidey senses slash wizzy sense not enacted, would Harry have died in the street? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think the night bus would have, wouldn't have hit him. Or maybe it's the night bus's power, you know, the fact that it wouldn't hit buildings and things. Maybe it's moved him out of the way. Perhaps. Whoa, whoa. No touchy-touchy. Don't touch the Harry. That's right. That is... Rosie, I love that answer, because we know that Barnes and stuff will jump out of the way, too. I didn't even think about that, but that is such a great answer. Um, That's wonderful. <laughs> that I would like that to be the answer. Um, so here we have the night bus. What a better time to jump into the new Pottermore information, which actually goes into detail about the night bus and where it comes from. So, Eric, would you like to read the, uh, the Pottermore information? Absolutely. For witches and wizards who are flu-sick whose apparition is unreliable, who hate heights, or feel frightened by taking port keys, there is always the night bus, which appears whenever a witch or wizard in urgent need of transportation sticks out their wand arm at the curb. A purple triple-decker bus, it has seats during the day and beds at night. It is not particularly comfortable, and I would advise against ordering hot drinks even if offered, but because of the bus's habit of leaping from one destination to the other at a moment's notice can result in a lot of spillage. The night bus is a relatively modern invention in wizarding society, which sometimes, though it will rarely admit it, takes ideas from the muggle world. The need for some form of transportation that could be used safely and discreetly by the underage or the infirm had been felt for a while, and many suggestions had been made. Sidecars on taxi-style broomsticks, carrying baskets slung under thestrals, all of them vetoed by the ministry. Finally, Minister of Magic Dugald MacPhail hit upon the idea of imitating the Muggles' relatively new 
bus service, and in 1865, the night bus hit the streets. While some wizards, mainly pureblood fanatics, announced their intention of boycotting what was dubbed this muggle-esque outrage in the letters page of the Daily Prophet, the night bus proved hugely popular with most of the community and remains busy to this day. The night bus was so named because, firstly, night is a homonym of night, and there are night buses running all over Britain after normal transportation stops. Secondly, night has the connotation of coming to the rescue, of protection, and this seemed appropriate for a vehicle that is often the conveyance of last resort. The driver and conductor of the night bus in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban are named after my two grandfathers, Ernest and Stanley. So cool. Yeah, I wanted to have that all read because I think especially the ending part of that um, section is really cool because we see that the night bus posed a problem for magical communities in the, you know, in the world because it was kind of adopting this muggle technology in a way. Well, this answers the question too, which I believe is in the document about why is it called night instead of night, you know, night yes. with a K. Yeah. Um, I really love the answer. Because because a knight comes in and, and it saves people. Usually a, a damsel in distress when I think of knight, but this is Harry, who is certainly not a damsel. You need to read more about knights than Noah. No, I know. They're also fighting <laughs> dragons and other stuff. I'm just using my heuristic sense about it. But uh, but yeah, so that answers that one. I, I have to admit, when I first read these books when I was younger, I thought night bus like night, like it's it's nighttime, even though it says uh, clearly night like a with a K. With a K. Right. <laughs> but uh, but that's the pun because it is night bus. There are night buses without the K in the UK. It's it's a common thing that you would find a bus that runs at night, just when Harry finds it at night. But this is his night in pur- purple shining armor. That comes and saves him when he needs it. Yeah, these these puns were lost on my twelve year old American sense. <laughs> she, you guys are just too smart for me. Um, but yeah, back to the question of did the bus kill Harry? Did it almost kill Harry? <laughs> um, who knows? Who knows? I think uh, if you have any thoughts on that, just head over to the comment section. I've actually got so a then, discussion in my forum um, over on the forums that is about the the comedy of this scene um, and how it is you know harry's knight in shining armor that kind of breaks the tension um of his darkest moment um that happens at the beginning of this chapter so go over there and join in all right all right nice uh, nice plug for rosie's uh, forum there um so then on page page 31 stan shunpai comes out and says what's your name and harry says never longbottom saying the first name that came to, into his head um, and there are tons of connections to Harry and Neville in this chapter, and I thought, wait a moment, is this a foreshadowing to the prophecy, the fact that Harry and Neville will be, you know, tied together forever? Um, and what, is it, what does it say about Harry that he kind of aligns himself with Neville, because it's the first name that tops, you know, pops into his head? Is wait, this mere- I was going to say this is circle theory, because this is book three, and we find out about that in book five. Yeah, definitely. Whoa. And it's funny because I was, as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, hmm, what connections are there between book three and book five? And I think bada this bing, is, bada boom. I think this is the first one. All right, and we'll be we'll continue to mark those as they happen. But yeah, she is. Jet was really uh, big with the foreshadowing. Because um, what other reason would he have to think of Neville at that moment? Why is Neville the first name that pops into his head? He's thinking of somebody who's unimpressive, who they won't already know. Um, and so in that way, he's doing a disservice to Neville, but I don't think it's, you know, it's not meant to be read that much into it. But he's thinking of somebody who, you know, if he were to say Harry Potter, they'd know, you know, oh, Harry Potter is 
you know, they know oh, yeah. the way he looks like, they'd be able to disprove him if he picked somebody famous. So he went with Neville Longbottom. That's something that's always bugged me. Like, why don't people know who Neville is as much as they know who Harry is? I mean, Neville's parents were really famous auras. Uh, yeah, but still, that's among us a very niche um, community of people who work for the Ministry or people who've seen Aurors. The larger wizard community that Stan and Ern are part of wouldn't really know a particular first or, in this part, third-year Gryffindor student, you know, who goes to Hogwarts. They live in the outside of Hogwarts realm. I guess, but they might recognize the name, recognize the name Longbottom. Longbottom, yeah, for sure. And here's something I just thought of, um... Going back to our ugly evil conversation, there, it talks here that Stan was only a few years older than Harry, um, with large protruding ears and quite a few pimples. So here we are getting a bad, you know, kind of an ugly description of somebody who, at the moment at least, is very innocent and not at all evil. Though later he's suspected to be a uh, Death Eater. Yeah, well, he, he is, evil. isn't he? Right. So Cat, I mean... No, he's he's never actually a Death Eater himself. He's, I'm pretty sure um, he flies through the sky and is the one that shot. Uh, yeah, he is. He shoot a spell at somebody. But he's he's under the Imperius curse. Well, that's not really confirmed, is it? I think Harry firmly believes it. But does that mean that it's true? Hmm. In terms of the fact that we, as a reader, are led by Harry and his opinions, yes. Interesting. I like it. <laughs> but yeah, it was just something I picked up on. So No, very yeah. good point. Um, so Harry enters the night bus and it's the crazy ride of his life. Take it away, Ern! <laughs> you know, except, you know, minus the little Jamaican head, which is only in the movie. But I, I still think the movie captured the scene very, like, that's one of my m- most favorite scenes of the entire uh, franchise, actually. Um, but that that is what happens. It's a very bumpy, crazy ride. And actually... Various things bump out of the way as the night bus um, drives. Lampposts, letterboxes, and bins jump out of its way, Um, which begged me originally to ask, are they alive? But then I was like, no, these are muggle objects. No way are they alive, which actually forced me to reconsider everything I've ever said on the show because (laughs) I honestly think that was just an enchantment. And if that was just an enchantment, then like... Everything is. Everything are just enchantments, and I've been spinning my wheels about... You know. No, don't go that far because there are there are things that have you know sentient life like we've talked about before. It's just right. this happens to be that the bus is pushing them out of the way. No, they are not alive. The thing of it is, furthermore, is that if anybody's ever gotten into a car accident with an inanimate object before and said, "Oh, that lamppost jumped right in front of me," like right, right, you know, <laughs> that mailbox came out of nowhere. You know, <laughs> clearly it was fixed to the ground where it was cemented in. And nothing jumps out in front of you. But in this case, it's the opposite of that. Joe has inverted it and had, you know, inanimate objects, stationary objects having to jump out of the way of the bus, which is pretty cool that you could drive that recklessly with no repercussions whatsoever. Unfortunate, of course, for the passengers. Right. It's interesting in terms of the discussion we had um, during Chamber of Secrets with um, what would happen if Ron was trying to drive that car through the Muggle streets. Oh, it would be very much like this. Here we have the answer. <laughs> well, I think, I think there are ultimately two, uh, two answers to this question. Either the night bus has some acting enchantment which works on whatever it's in the way of to just make it move, and maybe it even was able to do that to Harry to some degree, um, which, Rosie, you said, which I think is awesome theory. Um, or everything is secretly alive, and when, it's, when those things <laughs> sense magical objects, they just dance out of the way because they're secretly alive. Like Toy Story. 
Uh, I propose yeah. a third. I propose a third um, option, which is that the night bus travels through wormholes and. The <laughs> objects only appear to another jump, dimension. The objects only appear to jump out of the way to anybody who's in the night bus, but in reality, they're part. You know, they're not the, those objects at all. They're just reflections or shadows of those objects in a different Ooh. realm. The universe bends around. You know, are moving, hurtling, hurtling through space and time the same way. You know, anything that looks like it's stationary is actually hurtling at like sixty-six thousand miles an hour because it's on yes. Earth. Oh, um, you so you so belong on this show, Eric. Just saying. <laughs> so maybe it's the bus that's bending, not the world around it. And there is also no spoon, Noah. <laughs> you there got is me. no spoon. <laughs> you got me. There is no spoon, guys. <laughs> so then on page uh, page thirty three, um, Harry gets uh, well. Actually, Stan Shunpike is reading the Daily Prophet, and we have another vision of Sirius Black. And then Harry's like, "Who's Sirius Black?" Um, we have another one of those great moments. And Harry begins to read the article, and it's about how Fudge has talked about how he's given Sirius Black's name and description to the Muggle Prime Minister and is actually being, uh, not, not offended, but uh, criticized by other ministries or other governments, wizard governments around the world. It's, it's not really well thought out, I guess, I guess because they still have some stereotypes against Muggles. And that makes me think, is the Wizarding World's, or not Wizarding World, is the UK's uh, government, the Ministry of Magic's treatment of Muggles in that area, more liberal than in other parts of the world? Um, I would say that Voldemort is a specific threat within the UK, and the same with the Death Eaters. We don't really hear about an international threat um, from him. So we, as a community, would need to be more in touch with the Muggle Prime Minister and the Muggle community of England and the rest of the UK um, in order to protect them as well as us, as well as the wizarding community. um, Oh, she did it again. (laughs) I did it again. um, From, you know, the the threats of the Death Eaters and things, and Sirius Black is a a main example of that. Rosie, is there something you're not telling us? (laughs) Of course there is. Come on. I think, too, Sirius did kill a wizard, but 12 muggles got the brunt of it. Um, Yeah. Hypothetically. So... It's it's important to know that even though they have some idea where Sirius is heading, they'll also you know need to canvas Muggle areas. There's a lot more Muggle areas in the world for Sirius to be hiding in, and it really does mm-hmm. you know to point to Fudge's argument make a lot of sense for him to inform the Muggles about it, even though they just think he's a you know escaped convict. Yeah, Th- this whole section just makes me think that Fudge is talking to the introducing himself to the muggle prime minister every time is something that only he does that that's not done everywhere you know um and he probably gets a lot of flack from that from maybe the old wizarding families and conservative groups who say we shouldn't have any connection with muggles Um, at the same time i think it's probably due to the uk's size as a as a country um we are a small country compared to things like the u.s so we are in a lot close contact between the two um communities so you you would need to have a lot more of a kind of a, a talk, a conversation between the two ministries, right? Which you might not necessarily have to have in other countries because there might be a more distinct divide between the the two communities. Yeah, I, I kind of wish some some more information could be clarified on you know Pottermore. And That'd be once we get to the beginning of what is it, book six, the other right. minister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And can we just take a second and talk about Sirius's name? Because I just want to say how brilliant it is. Without looking at it, just saying it, Sirius Black. Sirius Black. Gives you, gives you, I mean, exactly. Like, you think about some seriously dark black 
like evil <laughs> person and i just think it's a brilliant name it's more pronounced in the u.s that you guys say serious instead of serious the e instead of the i sound um which has become a huge thing seriously um on the internet um with the eye mm-hmm. yeah with the eye yeah um but yeah the whole idea of the black connotations right being dark and mysterious and evil yeah it's a brilliant naming i just think it's great it's it's one of my favorite names for sure in the books and it gives you foreshadowing straight away if, if you were tr- really thinking about sirius and the name sirius the fact that it's the dog star Mm. Yeah. Oh, really? You've got that clue straight away that you don't how even. Did, how did I miss that? Just like Remus Lupin <laughs> in this book. If anybody knows Latin, yeah. it's you. It's over. You know the Romulus end of the book. Remus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then another black connection on page thirty-four. Um, Harry sees the image and says, "Black look like a vampire." Well, I just thought of a connection in my head. Did you guys know that Gary Oldman played Dracula in the nineteen yeah. nineties uh, movie? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Epically bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love Here, that movie. Here's an interesting. I, I wanted to say something about this too. Um, you know, black look like a vampire. We've also compared Snape to 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 a giant bat. You know, before um, those examples are in the books. But I think you know it's interesting. It's like a red herring because black isn't a vampire, although he's also an an animatabat and animagus. Um, so he is something other than human. So. Harry is, I guess, right in that assumption. But really, the only reason he looks like a vampire is because he looks pale. And the reason he looks pale is because we don't have enough information at the moment, but he's been dealing with dementors, which suck the life out of you. He looks lifeless. Yeah. Well, and being trapped in a prison, not getting any sun, I imagine, would do that to you yeah. as well. Not enough vitamin D. Right. <laughs> right. And, and all that blood he's, he's been sucking probably also <laughs> oh, contributes God. to his overall look. Um, and on page 35... Uh, they're, they're talking about Azkaban and the fact that Sirius, you know, got himself out. And Aaron says, I'd blow myself up before I set foot in that place. Dun, dun, hmm. dun. Random foreshadowing. Why she does it, I don't know. But for us readers who've read these books so many times. I've never picked up on that one before. Wait, tell, tell me, what, what are we foreshadowing? The fact that Pete, Peter literally blew himself up before he had set foot in that place. Oh, right. I, I got it now. Okay. Well, it was yeah. Ern that was saying it, so I was like, what? Yeah, but, but it's a brilliant link that I've never picked up on before. Well done, yeah. So, like, I can, I can just imagine as she's writing, she's, like, joking with herself. Ha, ha, ha. I'm sure she is. Um, oh, yeah. Gosh. This is how it happened, but... She's cheeky. <laughs> she's so cheeky. Cheeky monkey. Joe. Oh, you. Come on the show. <laughs> There's the title right there of this episode. Mm. Okay. Cheeky monkey Joe, come on the show. <laughs> So, so then after a wild ride, Harry finally makes his way to, uh, to London and the Leaky Cauldron. Um, oh, wait. I'm sorry. I wanted to point something else out. Go ahead. During that talk, um, you know, they're talking about Sirius Black, and Harry reads the, the newspaper article. They say to Harry, oh, yeah, no one's ever done that before, have they? You know, he's broken out of Azkaban, the wizard prison. But actually, what we learn later is that it's, it's all, as a matter of fact, somebody had else had broken out of Azkaban before. It's just that nobody knew about it, and that was Barty Crouch Jr. had... Yeah, that's true. In fact, you know, when by the time of book five, or I'm sorry, book six, with the mass breakout of Azkaban, it's like old hat to really have a, an escaped witch or wizard from Azkaban prison. <laughs> so it's interesting to mark the sharp decline in the security, the way we perceive Azkaban as being an excellent prison. Because in the end, we find out that it's run by these monsters and that there are ways of evading them. Well, well, didn't yeah. didn't Barty get out by switching with somebody else? His mother. Of? Yeah. His dead mother, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dying mother. Well, 
What a guy. <laughs> uh, real quality guy. So anyway, they make their way to the Leaky Cauldron, and then uh, they get out, or Harry exits the bus, only to find Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, right there. Um, Ernie, Ernie and Stanley are shocked because, you know, here's the Minister of Magic just kind of hanging about, picks up Harry and just, just explains to him that he's not going to be in any trouble. It's all taken care of. And Harry is very, obviously very skeptical. But there was a nice little gem of a quote here that I thought might actually help us with the abuse debate, um, even though now, as I've said, we've, we've th thoroughly throttled that thing to death. Um, so here's what Fudge says. The, they are your family, of course, the, the Dursleys, and I'm sure you're fond of each other very deep down. And, and this is from Harry, uh, in his mind. It didn't occur to Harry to put Fudge right. He was still waiting to hear what was going to happen to him now. So I just thought the way that that language was framed, how kind of cold it was, kind of, you know, Harry's saying right there that there is no deep down fondness, at least for him and the Dursleys. Um, and it just, the way it's written, it's just so, like, cutting to me. It seems like he's waiting, he's obviously waiting for something to happen. He's waiting for the reaction, the blow up, the, the whatever. I see, I see what you're saying, totally. Well, I mean, this is this is all in his head, too. Uh, it didn't occur to Harry to put Fudge right, so he, he just allows Fudge to go on because he just wants to hear what his punishment is going to be. But I think it speaks to kind of this, this his psychological damage, ultimately, because he's just like, there's no love there. There's not even a glimmer of hope that there's something there. The way the quote is translated to the doc doesn't do it justice. In the book, there's actually a, whole more, a lot more uh, ellipses, where it's like, I'm sure you're fond of each other uh, very deep down, because Fudge, yeah. at this point, has probably heard that... Uh, the Dursleys are unpleasant people from the, all the people who had to deal with them. Um, and he went there, yeah. uh, possibly. So Doubtful, but yeah. Or, or you, you don't think he went there to set... Uh, I don't think he went there, but, but somehow he knows enough about them to say, no, your uncle's actually pretty upset, but as long as you don't come home any of the vacations, you'll be fine. Um, you know, he, he kind of knows, you get a sense of what kind of people they are very quickly. We've been talking about this matter of abuse so many times, and I think we're all agreed to the, you know, that this this whole experience shaped Harry in the way he was going to be, um, and I think it's bigger in the series than we give it credit for sometimes. But I just uh, think like whenever he gets a sock from them for Christmas, and he's like, okay, whatever. I don't. I really at this point, I don't think it affects him. I don't think Fudge yeah, saying he's, he's completely over it. Yeah, I think he's over it. I think he's a bigger person. He he doesn't even care. So when Fudge is like, I'm sure you care about them. He's like, okay, they're family, whatever. Like. Whatever, let's just get on with it. What's my punishment? Like, I, I really don't think it, it states to a bigger sense of... No, me neither. ...not being able to mention the abuse or anything to the Minister of Magic. It's just he really just wants to figure out how this is going to impact his wizarding identity, which he sees as being the more important one. Well, I, I disagree with the both of you, Eric and Rosie. Um, okay. And that's, you know, that's, that's my disagreement, and we're just going to have to settle that outside. That's okay. <laughs> with violence. <laughs> no, not with violence. Oh, <laughs> boy. Paces. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but Cat, what side do you fall on? If Eric and Rosie have picked a team, not abuse Harry's going to do fine. Um, no, I, I like I said, I feel like yes, part of it is he's he's over his whole relationship with the Dursleys, but I do still feel like he's waiting for, like just what it says in the quote, he's waiting to hear what's going to happen. He's still waiting for something. So he's not waiting for a physical punishment. He's waiting to know whether he's been expelled from Hogwarts. No, I didn't mean a physical punishment. I definitely feel like here, here. <laughs> yes, I don't think the minister abuses Harry. No, <laughs> yeah. Like, but it no, would be funny if Harry thinks that's going to happen. No, I do think that he's waiting to be scolded in some yeah. way. Absolutely, and, you know. and and during this whole um, 
situation when Fudge says to him, oh yeah, we don't send people to Azkaban from blowing up their ants. There's a quote in the book, and it's like, this is actually in contradiction to the past direct dealings that Harry's had with the Ministry. Um, and he tells Fudge that much. You know, hey, look, <laughs> a house elf crashed a pound cake, and I got an official warning. Like, <laughs> so, so really, this whole scene is about the fact that the Minister of Magic himself needs to supervise Harry's protection for reasons Harry won't know for another chapter or two, which is that their biggest criminal, their biggest security leak in the history of the wizarding world happens to be coming straight for Harry and the, you know, with him in the crosshairs and the minister of magic himself is charged with protecting that information and Harry. And that's really what's going on. And so, you know, all of these, these different dealings and, and things that Harry's mentioning, like, no, you should be, like, throwing me out here. And Fudge has to say, well, surely you don't want to be expelled. You know, then there's no problem with it. La, 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 la. But really, what's really happening is Fudge himself has to guarantee Harry's safety, which right. is why he tells him to stick to Diagon Alley, not go off into the Muggle world so that Harry will be protected by crowds. Not that crowds really deter Sirius Black. Come on, he killed 13 Muggles. But whatever. Cat, if you wanted another link between this book and book five... Um, if you think about um, McGonagall and the, the famous line, have a biscuit, Potter, here we have Fudge saying, have a crumpet, Harry. <laughs> very true. Very true. Biscuits <laughs> and crumpets links, are very different true. things. <laughs> they are very different. <laughs> I need, I'm need. i going to go get some tasty cakes after this. Mm, tasty cakes. <laughs> they have the butterscotch crumpets. I'm going to have a Tim Tam. My roommate loves those. He, he stuffs those into his mouth like nobody's business. Do you, do you guys, uh, and this is this is the last comment of the chapter for sure, but do you think that Harry would have been expelled if uh, Sirius Black wasn't on the loose? Because that seems to be Harry's idea of what would happen. Probably. I think that one is a clear example of not being able to control magic. Mm-hmm. So it's the same as any underage magic. So no, I, don't I, think I, I agree. Expelled. I don't think he had a choice, but it sounds like he would have probably been expelled again. Would Dumbledore have had to come in earlier and save him? Hypothetically, of course. This is a what-if... Kind of. Possibly. I mean, the thing about the um, charm to to levitate the, the the pound cake is that that's fairly direct. Nobody accidentally does a levitation charm, with the exception right. of maybe Harry accidentally. Well, he didn't levitate. I guess he uh, somehow apparated on the top of his school roof. I'm sure you guys talked about that in book one. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think that a levitation charm is much more intentional much more very clearly you can scold somebody for that, whereas an accidental inflation of one's relative under extreme verbal torture. I, I, I think Harry, definitely there would have been some kind of politic about it, but I, I just don't, I don't think he would have been expelled. It's nonverbal is the other thing. Like, that has to count for something, the fact that Harry didn't utter a spell and make it happen. Mm, it that's just, true. Yeah. But I, I feel like they can detect magic, and Harry definitely used some kind of spell objectively, but... He just, it wasn't intentional. So what if the ministry can't see intent? They can only see the, the magic done. Right, as, well, right as but what Eric is it. saying is he didn't actually mutter any words. So I feel like that would make the difference for sure. Yeah, but would, would the ministry be able to prove that or would they just say, oh, I see, a, I see an inflation charm? You well, know. somehow they know. They definitely knew there was an inflation charm because they showed up on the He didn't have to call anybody. And the Dursleys right. wouldn't have known who to call. I mean, who do you call when, that, when, when magic has been performed? They don't have any phone Ghostbusters? I knew Wizards. someone was going to say that. I knew it would yeah. be you. I was going to say it myself, but I let Noah do it. <laughs> um, and uh, No, but really, like they had to have known the charm was performed, so there's that. But I do think, especially extenuating circumstances aside, they, they would have 
you know, there would have been some penalty for Harry, but I think he would have gotten out of it um, just because it was an accident, you know, in the face of great physical or emotional stress. It's the risk. It's the risk anybody takes letting a wizard kid, after he's been found to be a wizard, still live with muggles or around muggles. But it's the same risk that they take coexisting with muggles. Yeah. There's an accidental reversal or accidental magic reversal squad specifically for that reason. It happens. Yep. And as you said, they they must have known it was an accident because Fudge comes and says, "Oh, you know, it was an accident. You know, it's not a it's not a huge deal." Yeah. All right. That pretty much wraps up. My chapter discussion, it was, it, you know, not too long a chapter, but we certainly had a lot to say about it. There was a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. yeah. I think that chapter needs to be finished off, though, with a quote from the end of it, which is, it's been a very weird night, Hedwig. Which just perfectly sums up Harry's <laughs> attitude towards everything that's happened in that chapter. Totally true. Oh, we missed. How does Hedwig find Harry? That's true. Because she's a smart owl. Hedwig is the most clever owl in existence. <laughs> she could be stalking him. I th- oh, God, no. <laughs> Hedwig is really Dumbledore. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> Wait a um, second. That would change everything. <laughs> Wait a second. What, Don't what, go there. What role could Mrs. Fig have played in this whole event? Do you think she could have called the ministry when something happened? Do you think she's always sort Mrs. of... Mrs. Fig's nowhere near it. She's in her own home a couple of streets away. I don't think she. No, but she's watching. She's she's keeping an eye. She's like in the bushes out there with her binoculars. But her cats, right, Mr. Tibbles, isn't that his name? Tibbles. Yeah. Tufty. 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 Not within the house at this time. I just see her as a very. That's that's a very interesting um, image of Arabella Fig sitting at home, and she has her cat informant informants or her Neasel informants come to her and report on the goings on of the whole neighborhood. I think that's probably why she has so many cats. She's right on the scene with the uh, with the Dementor attack back, you know, in book five. So I think she's kind of watching Harry. I think she's kind of like following but, him. Well, along. at that point, Voldemort no. is back, so that makes sense. At that point, they are specifically watching Harry. I don't think like she's she sure she's placed there to keep an eye on him throughout his childhood, and that's why he's always going to her over summer holidays and things when um the when the Dursleys can't be bothered to to look after him anymore or take him on holidays with them, but. I don't think that she has an active role in his life until uh, until the um, the Order of the Phoenix starts up again, and she's specifically asked to watch him. I mean, I mean, it's true, but I, I'd kind of like to see a little bit more information about her because if you think about it, as a squib, Harry's literally her only connection to the to Wizarding World, or maybe like a big substantial connection. Um, you know, it's it's very possible that she has a weird obsession with him and has been following him for days on end. She's in contact with Dumbledore and yeah. people. She's Harry's not the only connection. Right, right, but Dumbledore's Dumbledore's solemn request to watch him, you know, to what to what degree she takes that seriously is uh, is really up for speculation. Good. Well, thus ends chapter three. Let it go, Noah. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> chapter four. The Leaky Cauldron. Oh, Crookshanks! No, 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 no! Don't do that, Crookshanks! No, stop, stop, stop! No, Crookshanks! Oh dear. <laughs> okay, so a, a few days have passed, um, and Harry is still in Diagon Alley, um, and he's really getting used to being on his own for the first time with a decent amount of freedom, um, which he has never really experienced before, because he's always been either with the Dursleys or stuck at Hogwarts, where, you know, he has a certain amount of freedom, but not to go shopping. Aha! What was the aha for, Noah? I, I just I just saw that line, and I was like, abuse, he hasn't, been, he hasn't had free, his freedom to do anything, but... No, just being a child. <laughs> okay. 
enough of that. Um, so yeah, this is a week where, you know, all you can do is explore a, a street of shopping, which no one really gets the chance to do because there's always other kind of requirements. Um, so it's quite nice that Harry finally gets to explore the Wizarding World to his heart's content. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got me wondering, you know, is Fudge paying for Harry's stay at the Leaky Cauldron? We we never find out, like, specifically how long he is there for. Um, but it seems like it would get quite expensive, you know, bed and breakfast every day. What do you guys think? It's part but- of the Weasley's trip money. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's no, it's where it went. I think this is a this is a government funded uh, little vacation for like two weeks. I wonder how much money that was. Three weeks, I think. Well, again, right? for for Harry's own protection, right? That's that's everybody's right. priority. It's, it's like a witness protection program. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. definitely fall under. Paid for probably by wizard taxes, which we haven't even begun to talk about on the show. And we're not going to right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> But we are going to talk about finances because Harry is practicing good financial um, awareness and not spending all of his money at once, and resisting the temptation to spend it all on ice cream. This this um, this time that he spends on his own at Diagon Alley, like you say, exploring the shops, this is a very formative couple of weeks, I want to say, um, for Harry. He has to learn financial responsibilities like, oh, well, there's going to be, you know, he wants to buy the firebolt, you know, immediately when he sees it. It's he wants it more than anything else in the world, you know, gold cauldrons, things like that. And he's like, well, I have quite a few more years of school ahead of me. Better not. Um, yeah. You know, and he doesn't ask for the price of the firebolt. He just wants to, but he doesn't because he's smart like that. But also, he does his homework. He has this great, you know, situation worked out with Florian Fortescue, who I have to say is like one of the nicest old men of the series, <laughs> who just like gives him free Sundays every half an hour. That we never get to meet. I know. Suck. And sometimes helps him on his homework. Pretty sure he was a Death Eater for a while, um, oh, but God. it turned out that he wasn't. Uh, yeah, but but I'm just saying, in general, like this is the first time Harry gets to be his own person on his own, kind of, you know, free of the school year, you know, also free of his friends. This is where you find yourself, you know, when, when you have the choice of deciding how to occupy your time, how to spend your days. And I just have to say I admire Harry, but I also completely um, can relate to, you know, some, some, I guess, my teen years. You know, if you, if you ever go somewhere that's new and exciting and you have the freedom to really just walk around and see other people, and it's very formative. And I'm really glad that this is part of what makes this book my favorite of the Harry Potter books, because Harry has the opportunity to do this. What would have happened if Tom Riddle had had the opportunity to just to live in the Leaky Cauldron rather than his orphanage over the summer and have that freedom to be himself for the first time? What do you think would have happened? Um, the orphanage is an interesting question because that is obviously a very horrible place. It's where all the forgotten children go and all that stuff, but... You know, so that's that's an interesting question. But I will say, you know, to kind of half ask, answer that question, I think Voldemort did have quite a lot of time to himself, especially after Hogwarts, that he devoted to, of course, um, you know, finding out the Horcruxes and finding out his own lineage um, and things like that. So yeah. he he his, his he focused but, his but energies. But Rosie, what an interesting point, because that that makes me think that what if. Uh, Voldemort became who he was because of the orphanage, and he's, it's actually a structural issue. And this entire series is J.K. Rowling's hitting at orphanages. But he's in the orphanage because his mother died, so that's the thing that ultimately made him what he is. Oh, yeah. Do you guys think that, to completely completely segue, do you guys think that uh, Sirius knew that Harry wanted the firebolt so bad was because he was actually kind of dipping into uh, Diagon Alley occasionally and seeing Harry um, 
honestly ogle the firebolt. And, you know, it's possible that he wouldn't go there because it's too busy. He might get noticed. But I know how rash Sirius is. I wouldn't put it past him to be watching Harry even at this moment. I'm sure that he followed him at some point. I'm not sure. I don't think that he would have ever known that Harry really wanted the firebolt. I think that when he he knows that he accidentally destroyed the broom later on, and he would have tried to make that up to Harry by getting the, him the best broom possible, which at this time was the firebolt. Right. But potentially if Sirius is watching him even now, but, but you seem to be suggesting that he's probably not in Diagon Alley watching him. I think it, it would have been too hard for him to get in there. Hmm. Either as Sirius or as a dog. Why would Tom have let a dog through the wall? He could have snuck in with somebody. I mean, nobody knows about his um, about his form except for, you know, Lupin and Peter Pettigrew. And yeah, but he is a, a large dog. He's not something that can just kind of hide and sneak past. I mean, we, we see him later on um, kind of begging off muggles and things. Like, he, he's, he's very noticeable as a dog. Yeah, but I think at this this time uh, in his career, like he's very satisfied in his disguise, um, and I, I wouldn't put it past him. And we know that you can also get through there through uh, flu powder. There are different ways to get into Diagon Alley than just through Leaky Cauldron. So, um, how does a dog say Diagon Alley when it's stepping into a fire? Oof. The same way an owl does. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> anyway, they have their own language. Right. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I just thought of a, an owl in the fireplace and. I wouldn't want to. Think we've had about this that discussion again. before. We've we've asked how kind of owls um, migrate the the country or navigate even the country um, to deliver their post and whether the flu network was involved. I see. I just thought they just kept flying. <laughs> Why wouldn't anybody just assume the simplest answer? They fly that great distance because, because it's Noah. <laughs> because me. And they all they we concluded they all end up in a, pl- a little place called Hoot. <laughs> but. As we were discussing the firebolt, it is a nice bit of foreshadowing here for book four, where we discover that the um, the firebolt has been ordered by the Irish Quidditch team um, for their international matches for, for the following year in the build-up to the Quidditch World Cup. Um, so that's just a really nice little detail that might get missed in this book, but it's, you know, it's, it's foreshadowing for the next book. Then we enter other shops, including... Um, flourish and blots where Harry has to go and buy all of his school books and for the first time he makes the connection that the monster book of monsters might actually be a school book and we get this kind of cage full of this editions of the monster book of monsters and it just gets me thinking you know why has no one told the shop manager how to deal with these books who is it that makes them and publishes them and you know it's bad practices from the Wizarding University Press. It's bad for business, honestly. You'd think you'd, they'd put a little uh, note on the on the box, you know, stroke the spine. I think yeah. they, they put an insert in each of the pages, but the monster book ate it. it ate them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's possible. That's true. So, uh, it's, well, then again, it's not as much of a publishing blunder as the Invisible Book of Invisibility. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's so funny. How many, how many books do you think the Wizarding World creates that you just simply can't use? Oh my god, so many. <laughs> well, then again, how many real books do you think we make that, that are just not useful? Probably a lot, That's but true. not in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, you guys know me. I'm kind of burning to ask a certain question. Um, that's kind of. I think we did that last week, though. Yeah, but uh, I didn't ask Eric. Eric, do you think the Monster okay. Book of Monsters <laughs> is alive to some degree? Oh, does God. it have sentience? Um, no. No. Okay, I, that answers that then. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's a gimmick. I think it's a gimmick. It's it's bewitched to behave, uh, 
as if it were an animal. It has basic instincts like wanting to eat you. But I don't think it needs sustenance, and I don't think it excretes anything. So maybe, so it's maybe a lower form of life than everything around. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't. I, I would, I would compare it. I would say it's as alive as the chess pieces that McGonagall transfigures or the Hogwarts statues. I would say it's exactly as alive and no more alive than those. Um, right. Because, and, and I, I was surprised by this, but um, we found out a little later that the chess pieces. I think it was from J.K. Rowling were bewitched. To pretty much behave as if they're, you know, sentient like humans. Almost, she almost right. put like a, a very human charm in them, which I wouldn't have suspected. I would have just assumed it was like a, listen for commands kind of spell, but it was actually closer to her brand, which is transfiguration. Um, she transfigured them, but they, I don't think they have a soul. So I don't right, know. right. That's the thing. It, it's just that it's it's just kind of interesting how there are all these devices or you know even things that have have near human. Mm-hmm. Um, emotive function or just animal function um and i I talk about that on the show all the time muggles do it too i mean with artificial intelligence with a motorized hand or robot you know robotics that are designed to imitate life but it's not life and it's not the same life that's why it will forever be called artificial intelligence right because it's not the biological chemicals firing in the brain it is instead this imitation of life no that's an that's an excellent uh, comparison that's a very definitive Um, answer eric very good yeah thank you um (laughs) <laughs> so Harry goes deeper within the shop um, and asks for his books for divination and while there he notices a table which is full of death omen books um, including what to, do, what to do when you know the worst is coming and um, where is it? What, I can't find it um, predicting the unpredictable insulate yourself against shocks and broken balls when, fu- when fortunes turn foul and he, on this table, he notices that on the front of one of these books, you have a black dog, large as a bear, with gleaming eyes. Um, and this dog is the Grim, which is a death omen. And it just made me think, you know, does Sirius know about his resemblance to the Grim? <laughs> and, or is it just a kind of massive coincidence? Hmm. Maybe, I, I, maybe he knows it works in his favor, because when people see the dog, they get scared and they want to run oh, away. That's a good thought. And that's but why he's he can a go friendly out. dog. I, I, yeah, I think I think the thing of it is too that um, the real seri- the human Sirius Black is mangy because he has been in a prison cell for X amount of years. Um, the dog is is you know equally as as ragged because of the same reason. Once he is out of Azkaban for a little while, the color returns to his human face. He'll appear more friendly, more yes, yes, more well groomed as a dog as well. Um, I don't think anybody has pointed out that that resemblance to Sirius Black. That's just me guessing. Um, it's obviously extremely convenient for the purposes of the story because Harry wonders if he's about to die. That's extremely important. Sure. Um, but I don't think it's... It, I think it's, you know, one of those things that's in Harry's world and not necessarily did ever occur to Sirius. I think it's quite nice as an example of the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy, which is obviously a, a massive mm-hmm. theme within the rest of the books. Yeah. Um, so as a kind of a, a subtle introduction to that idea, it's it's quite nice. Um, but it gets me thinking, you know, Harry is slightly freaked out, um, not massively so. Should he be a bit more worried that he might, you know, be about to die again? Um, or is he kind of used to it because he's almost died three times now and he's just, you know... Old hat. He can handle it. Yeah, I was it. just going to say yeah. it's old hat to him. Yeah. <laughs> he laughs in the face of danger. If someone's not threatening his life a given day, then it's not a it's not a good day. It's not right. a day. 
Yeah. It's not really a day at all. It's actually the it previous must be a night. Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, I'm thinking of a whole host of Chuck Norris slash Harry Potter jokes that are just that (laughs) could come, but it's just going to take some time. So a few more days pass um, and we finally get to see Ron and Hermione again. And they've already done most of their school shopping um, and they are sat once more in Florian Fortescue's ice cream parlor. We hear that Mr. Weasley has been gossiping again um, and that Ron and Hermione know exactly why Harry is there and what he has done. And it just, you know, does Harry ever get annoyed that he has no privacy when it comes to the Weasleys? Maybe, but I think that he, he overall he welcomes family. If you think of the way that Mr. and Mrs. Weasley are behaving, that he discovers them chatting about him in, in such a way later on in this chapter, um, I, I just felt when reading it how fortunate Harry really is to have these two grown adults who are having an entire discussion about his safety and what, whether it's right or not to discuss, you know, with Harry yeah. the problems. I was just thinking, Harry is so lucky to have these two people who care greatly about him and who are discussing his welfare at such a length. Sure. It's definitely nice in contrast to the the previous relationships we've seen throughout so the book. I would say for Harry, it has to be nothing but a welcome, you know, feeling, really. It's um, nice to know they care, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Rosie, how much privacy did he have for the first 11 years of his life? In terms that they didn't really care what he was up to quite a lot, probably. He could just live his own life and in the cupboard under the stairs. I think he actually did describe that once as pretty freeing. Um... Maybe I could be wrong there, but they just really didn't care. So he would go on Dudley's computer when Dudley was away and all that stuff. But we have seen that Ron has finally got a new wand to replace the one that has broken in the last chapter. And I know that Kat wants to discuss this a lot. So the the description of the book of his wand is it's a brand new wand, 14 inches, willow containing one unicorn tail hair. All right. So this is interesting. I'm going to read the description for willow. It says, Willow is an uncommon wand wood with healing power, and I have noted that the ideal owner for a willow wand often has some unusually warranted insecurity. However, while they may try and hide it. While many confident customers insist on trying a willow wand, attracted by their handsome appearance and well-founded reputation for enabled advanced non-verbal magic, my willow wands have consistently selected those of the greatest potential, whether than those, uh, rather than those who feel they have little to learn. It has always been a proverb in my family that he who has the furthest to travel will go fastest by willow. I thought the part about the non-verbal magic uh, was very interesting. It says a well-founded reputation for enabling advanced non-verbal magic. How many times have I brought up the fact that I thought Ron was doing non-verbal magic? Just saying. You have. You totally called it. So I think that this but also the fact that he's got that innate insecurity in things is a very suitable one word for him. Right, very much. And it does say that um, those that show the greatest potential rather than those who feel they have little to learn, which I think is so true about Ron. Completely true. Definitely. Um, and do you have any? Do you have a, the the bit about unicorn hair? Or I, I can kind of riff because I know a lot about it. Um. Yeah, unicorn. Okay, it says unicorn hair generally produces the most consistent magic and is the least subject to fluctuations and blockages. Wands with unicorn cores uh, generally the most difficult to turn to the dark arts. They are the most faithful of wands and usually remain strongly attached to their first owner. Minor disadvantages are that they do not make the most powerful wands, although the wood may compensate. And they're prone to melancholy is seriously mishandled. So that is just a perfect description of Ron, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Prone to melancholy if mishandled. Yeah, that's so, t- that's so true. Hmm. It makes me sad that he loses his one later on. 
Yeah. I think he gets it back, though, hopefully. I forgot about that. So, in terms of Ron, his wand is definitely matching um, his personality. We've we've spoken at length about wands and our own experiences with Pottermore. Um, so, we will skip over that. But definitely within the book, wands definitely suit their characters. Okay, so Hermione says that she's still got ten galleons left after her shopping. Um, and it gets me thinking, you know, does she, doesn't she need any money at Hogwarts? She's about to go and spend it all on a pet. Um but apparently that's what they're going to do. So they go to the um, magical animal emporium, magical menagerie even. Um, and it's weird that all of the animals in there seem a bit strange. They're all animals with magical qualities rather than the animals that we're used to seeing with um, our Hogwarts students. Rather than a rat or a toad or, you know, a normal owl, we've got rats that are skipping and doing odd things. I, I, want, I want the rabbit that turns into a hat. Yeah, exactly. Makes it easy for the magician. Right, exactly. <laughs> so Hedwig is incredibly normal compared to all of these creatures. And we finally get to meet Crookshanks, um, who already knows there's something strange about sca- about Scabbers. And, you know, he's a, a big, grumpy, ugly-looking cat that Hermione just completely falls for. Do you think that there's some kind of link between her personality and his that she, she feels this connection? I think she likes him because he's a ginger. <laughs> Maybe that's true. I haven't thought about that one. Whoa, that's a that's an excellent connection. I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, Do you think Ron is grumpy and ugly looking as well? No, but <laughs> I mean he's definitely a ginger. So yeah. Do you, I mean? Do you see any subtle connections between the two characters? No. Or, or the cat and Ron rather. Nope. Besides being ginger, because that would be an indication of. Maybe it's something we should look out for during the book. Yeah, something to keep an keep eye an on. Eye on that one, Noah. So we get so many comments about the fact that Sirius is still at large. We get He's mentioned practically every other page, um, just in case we forget. Hmm. And here we see that he is once again on a paper um, that Mr. Weasley has been reading. And we get Pompous Percy walking through the door. He is the second head boy in the family. And um, the Weasley twins say, and last, to which Mrs. Weasley says, I don't doubt that. And again, you know, poor Ron. Even now, Mrs. Weasley is probably thinking that he would never be head boy over Harry. Hmm. He's always second position. Aww. But don't you guys think that Ron would have been head boy had, uh, had things not gone differently? Um, well, they would still think Ron and Hermione together? Or? He was a prefect. Why wouldn't he be head boy? Yeah. Well, because who were the other prefects in their year, right? Ernie, Ernie McMillan, right? Justin Finch. Which Fletcher. is a complete candidate. toss of that one. Right. <laughs> But I mean, but do you not think that Ernie is quite similar to Percy? Justin Finch Fletchley, maybe, but not Ernie. I don't know. Hard to say. I I don't know that that Ron necessarily would have been head boy. Hermione would have been head girl. I I think. think I think would have been Ron. Yeah. The Ministry of Magic is sending cars to pick up (laughs) Harry, Hermione, and the Weasleys to take them to Platform Nine and Three Quarters. And, it, you know, is this extreme concern for Harry or is it just a publicity stunt? Is it just the Ministry trying to look like it's doing something while they can't find Sirius? Hmm. A little bit of both. Yeah. I think there's a lot in this book that could be seen to be undermining the Ministry and how it works, including all of the stuff about, you know, the prison and how it continues to fail so many times. I think yeah. this book is intensely political. Like, it's yeah. all about, uh, and, you know, maybe some of it inspired casual vacancy. To some degree. It's possible. Or, I have no proof, but this is my this is my take from the first few chapters. 
again, it's something to look out for throughout the book. So, you know, if you find a moment where the ministry is being undermined, write it on the forums. Yep. Um, and Harry goes downstairs to find the rat potion that the rat tonic even that Ron has picked up for Scabbers. And he overhears Arthur and Molly arguing over what's best for him. And it, again, yeah, it's a very parental scene. Eric's already said this. It's just nice to see people actually caring about Harry's welfare. But it got me thinking, you know, is Harry happy not knowing? Or has, you know, has not knowing something ever stopped him from having his adventures? Or does the knowledge actually spark the adventure? And if so, you know, why isn't Harry more kind of afraid or more kind of... Why does he have, have the, this apathy? Yeah, why doesn't he want to well, I think, face Well, I think if Caleb was here, he'd tell you. Uh, he's a Gryffindor, you know, he's just looking for adventure. And as we've talked about, Harry, you know, someone's threatening Harry's life pretty much every day. He's uh, He's got Voldemort to look out for, so just one more guy is not so much of a big deal. Um, and he would have found, I think he would have found out eventually if, I mean, we're going to talk about the whole, this later, but um, I, I, I think Harry definitely would have found out eventually regardless. Oh yeah, but but I think in terms of just now, he craves adventure, and especially if it's about him, and and it's it you know, he's a, he's a Gryffindor, so he wants to he wants to take it on. So I'd definitely say it sparks something in him. He's just very matter of fact too. He doesn't see the point of people jumping around the situation. Um, if some convicted murderer is coming straight for him and has said that he's coming straight for him, uh, you know, he'd rather know. This is why he still says Voldemort. Um, yeah, you know, fear and, of the name. And everybody sure. else is like, you know who, even on the night bus. Exactly. They're like, you know who this, you know who, what, you mean Voldemort? And they they freak the hell out. afraid of except fear itself. Yeah. They freak out and he just doesn't care because he's like, I'm over it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the um, things that the, the Wheezies are arguing about, um, Arthur says that Black lost everything the night that Harry stopped you know who and he's had 12 years alone in Azkaban to brood on that. And like we were saying earlier, I just I really love how many snippets that Joe writes that are true, but not in the way that you think they are. So here, you know, Arthur means that um, that Black lost Voldemort and all of his power um, when Harry stopped him. But actually, everything that Black lost was Lillian James, the trust of Remus, the friendship of Peter, the opinion of the entire magical community and his freedom. He ended up in azkaban for no reason whatsoever that's so true it's very tragic i never thought of it that way that's so true but but do you think uh in some capacity arthur is referencing the fact that you know he lost both james and lily because even though you know they obviously think black turned were they not as good friends with uh black and and or sirius and james and lily like when they were first fighting voldemort because it kind of sounds like that because if they the, the amount of camaraderie that goes on after the fact um, kind of suggests that they've even been old Remus, friends. Even Remus, like, turns against Sirius. So I don't think that Arthur would be saying that um, Black is ashamed of losing Lillian James. Um, at this point, he believes that Black lost, you know, the Dark Lord and his rise to power. Right, they all do. Um, he believes he's a Death Eater. We also learn that Dumbledore doesn't like the Azkaban guards, um, so we're already being told to fear them before we even meet them, as we will in the next chapter. Um, and we go back to the idea of the book, which was what to do when you know the worst is coming. Um, and Harry says, alone in his room, I am not going to be murdered. And his mirror replies, that's the spirit, dear. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. 
But by the end of this chapter, we know pretty much everything we need to know for the rest of the book. We know that Sirius has escaped and that he's determined to go to Hogwarts for some reason. We know that the disliked Azkaban guards will be there to guard Harry. And this is against Dumbledore's better judgment. We know that Scabbers is looking unwell and that Crookshanks is after him. And with that, we are ready to board the train back to Hogwarts. Yay! Yes. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we're definitely all set up at this point for the rest of the book. Which is great. I like that it's kind of out of the way early. But, you know. Okay, so let's move on to the special feature this week, which is actually not going to be Pottermore in death. It is going to be What If. What if? But, Professor Dumbledore, what if the Sorting Hat had put me in Slytherin? It is our choices, Harry, that show who we truly are. And the first one we have is from Hufflepuffskeen again. It says, what if Harry had gone to the orphanage? How would the story be different? So... Instead of going to the Dursleys, what if Harry had, in fact, gone to the orphanage? Let's take the whole blood thing out of it. Let's just, how would Harry's story itself be different? Well, you can't go on without blood. Because doesn't that define his, uh, kind of define his character? But I'm saying just take the blood protection out of it. I think what the heart of this question is asking is how would Harry be different? How would Harry approach the world differently? How would he act differently? How would his choices be different? There's a certain amount of guilt that Harry feels um, throughout his childhood, I think, of being the one that survived out of his family. Um, And that's all put there because of the fact that he is with family um, throughout his childhood, a family who doesn't like him, doesn't like his parents. Um, He's kind of constantly reminded that they've they've gone and, um, and kind of what he could have had. Whereas with an orphanage, I think there wouldn't necessarily be so much of an emphasis on his previous family. Um, I think it would have been a different situation growing up and it would have made Harry into a different person. Whether or not that would have been extremely different from who he is when he gets to Hogwarts, I'm not sure. But I mean, it's an interesting question. I think he personally, I think he would have had a very similar experience that uh, Tom Riddle had because he would have, you know, maybe developed camaraderie around the boys his age, you know, had some friends which would have been good but then he'd also be developing these magical skills and it's possible that he might might have been bullied for them um i but one of the main differences between harry and tom is that while tom is in the orphanage he is using his powers to hurt people whereas harry is constantly using his powers whether he's aware of them or not to you know to get away from people or to release to do acts of kindness or to release the snake from its captivity they're very different people, even when they don't actually know how to control their magic. This is true, but if he was, but if he was bullied, maybe in the beginning, potentially in this hypothetical situation, and that led him to use it in a protective way, you know, he could. What if he? What if he could have developed like Voldemort did? I think in both cases, nobody was around for Harry, even when he was with the Dursleys. Nobody was around to usher him into the magical world until such time as his eleventh birthday when Hagrid came and, you know, Tom Riddle when Dumbledore came and told him why he was special. Um, You know, they have no guidance growing up in a muggle orphanage and that's important, but I think Harry and Voldemort would have been two different people or the same people that they are. Um, If Harry had gone to the orphanage, he still would have used his powers in a protective way to evade capture the way that he did when he was a child and wasn't, didn't know what he was doing. Do you think he would be as nice and as humble as he is? That's a good question because he would have grown up with a lot more people who had also had no family. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe what Rosie was talking about, you know, the guilt 
of being of being the sole survivor might have been muted a little bit more. Mm. Um, because every foster kid, you know, is is mm. well potentially an orphan, an orphanage. Right. So I don't know what the effect that really would have had on him, but it's interesting. So our next what if question then is what if Sirius had spoken to Harry before he got onto the night bus? <laughs> so when Harry first saw him, you know, instead of just kind of creeping on him, if he had actually, you know, showed himself and spoken to him, what would have happened? I think it would have been an incredibly different book. Um, but it gets you, it, like, would Harry have been afraid of him if he thought he was just a muggle prisoner that had escaped? Is it the fact that Harry then learns that he's a wizard and learns all of this backstory that makes yeah. him truly afraid of Sirius? Because if Sirius could have explained everything just then, he could have been like, Hop on my back, son. And then they could have <laughs> they could have pounced and they could have just gone off into the distance and you know They could have used the entire year planning how to get back at Peter rather than Yeah. He wouldn't have even had to go back to Hogwarts, he could have just had a father. Uh, um He would have still gone back to Hogwarts. The first thing I think I see Sirius saying to Harry when he transforms out of the bush into his human form would be like, Hey, you got any dog food? <laughs> that's, that's just for some reason. Weird that's what um, but I don't think Harry or Sirius was in no fit state to talk to anybody, even as a human, um, because he's still fresh out of Azkaban and on the run. And I think he was, he's, he's actually, even by the time we get to the Shrieking Shack at the end of the school year, Sirius is way too rabid still, even as a human, he's, he's way too bent, hellbent on revenge that he really isn't thinking clearly. He really isn't taking into account, like Remus has to hold him back and be like, this is what Harry wants and trying to appeal to his humanity. Sirius's humanity takes at least a year to really return to him. Um, So why do you think that Sirius goes to Harry at that moment? Why do you think he goes to Little Winging? Is it, or Winching even, um, do you think it is to reassure himself that Harry is okay? Yeah. Um, Yeah? Yeah, I think so. In which case, that just proves that Sirius is good. Doesn't Sirius mention it to Harry when he says, hey, that was me, but I, I just wanted to check on you? Um, doesn't he say that at the end of... Sure. I think so, he apologizes book. for scaring him. Yeah, something like that. Which just proves that he's an awesome godfather. He really He's the first person that we see that really does care, other than the Weasleys. But the Weasleys have their own family to, to care for, and Sirius literally only has Harry. That's true. Okay, so then our very last what-if question is, and we brought up this briefly in the last chapter, but what if Harry hadn't overheard Arthur and Molly discussing Sirius? If he never learned about, you know, that Sirius was after him and his past and all of that. I don't think it would have changed anything if he hadn't overheard, because I think Arthur would have taken him aside and told him what he needed to know. He would have eventually found out the same information, just in a different way. I mean, he has to have the talk sometime. Don't Hermione and Ron know? Do they? No, they don't know. I don't think so. Harry tells them. Oh. Hmm. Okay, well, I guess that about (laughs) (laughs) wraps that up. That's the end of our special feature for this week. Okay, and now uh, now we go to my one of my favorite sections, the podcast question of the week, which we pose to fans every episode, and then you can put some of the answers on the Alohomora site, and we will select a couple of those answers and read them out on the show. So the question of the week this week is this. Sirius Black is able to brood on his hatred for Harry in, uh, in Arthur's theory of why he was able to uh, escape from Azkaban, because Dementors take the happy thoughts away, leaving only the bad and negative thoughts, which, you know gave him this momentum and energy to leave Azkaban. However, 
Would Azkaban actually be a safer place if Dementors fed on dark thoughts, meaning the prisoners would only retain those moments of true, non-vindictive joy from their lives? If, if that were the case, then Azkaban would be something like a massive stream of antidepressants being thrown on the prisoners, and by virtue of that, them being too happy to leave. Um, and like a rehabilitation center rather than a prison. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that also has a whole host of ethical concerns with attached to it, but, um, you know, it's, we're throwing it to the fans, so go ahead to the Alohomora website, and uh, we'll read some answers on the next episode. Yeah, essentially because Dementors eat your dark thoughts, or eat your, eat your happy thoughts. What would happen, what would be different if they ate your bad thoughts, and you could only think good things? Exactly. That's such an interesting thought. I'm really excited to hear what the fans say. Yeah. Definitely. And so I guess that about wraps up the show for this week. Uh, we want to thank you, Eric, again for being with us. Um, brought some great insight to the show. Hope you enjoyed yourself. It was my pleasure. I very much hope to be back. Yes, absolutely, for um, some chapters later in the book, right? As many as you'll have me. Okay, great. Great. <laughs> and if you too would like to be on the show, then you can email a clip of yourself to alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you need to have the appropriate audio and recording equipment. And you can also submit content on the Alohomora website and we read through everything. So it's definitely a great way of getting on the show. And in the meantime, if you just want to stay in contact with us, send us a note, um, you know, a love letter, whatever. You can follow us on Twitter at MN. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. And as always, you can give us a call at our phone number 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206 462 5287. And of course, our main website is alohomora.mugglenet.com and our email, alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And one more reminder, as always, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. We love reading those and highly appreciate it. So thank you. Yep. And we have a store. You can go ahead and buy Alohomora t shirts just by going to the Alohomora website and clicking on the banner up top. It says store in big letters. And you have access to the Lohomora t-shirts. And you can get them in different colors. You can get sweatshirts. You can get tees. Um, tank you know, tops. For, for whatever you need, tank tops. Um, and we're also about to release a new line of Lohomora t-shirts with all the inside jokes that we have. So get ready. Get excited for some desk pig kind of merch. Wizard uh, wizard werewolf unicorn. Basilisk wizard phoenix. Um, maybe some host shirts in the future. Just like a lot of cool stuff. Um, so definitely... Keep watching that store link, and we'll be sure to uh, keep you all updated when we make any significant updates there. We're also hoping to have iPhone cases, tote bags, water bottles, lots of things other than just T-shirts in the future, so do keep checking back. Yeah, and again, we'll, we'll make sure to let you all know when we come out with the new stuff. We also have a, an app, which we've talked about a lot, and that great video on YouTube that goes along with it. Um, and as Kat said before, I'm actually going to be putting a vlog on there in which I talk about... You know, lots of different things. There might be some mandrakes in there. There might be some talk about um, owls and the potential gender stereotypes that they come aligned with. So it's available in the U.S. for iPhone and Android. Uh, in the U.K., it's only for the iPhone at at $1.99 or 99 pence. Um, and on it, again, we have host vlogs, we have bloopers, transcripts, different endings for the show. Those are pretty cool because I often do crazy stuff during the episode um, and much more. So definitely go and check that out. And there is a poll at the moment on our Alohomora main page where you can vote for what kind of things you'd like us to be creating. So definitely go and do that and help us out. Yes, please do. Yep. And if I, if I may make one more announcement, um, I've been posting a lot of quibbles on MuggleNet. So many of the Alohomora fans know about quibbles. There are these essays or theoretical discussions just are brought up from the Harry Potter series. And Alohomora is one of those great 
things and sections on the site where fans can actively talk about these theories. Um, and what I'm asking everyone to do, please, is to, if you ever come up with an essay, you know, I'm calling them quibbles, but they can also be essays or theories, you know, whatever, send them to this email account, mugglenetessays at gmail.com. That goes straight to me. And then I'm going to feature those essays right on right on MuggleNet's main page, um, so we can really facilitate some of this great Alohomora discussion and get it mixed in with the the general news post because you fans have a lot of interesting things to say. And that that about wraps up our show. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Kent Miller. And I'm Rosie Morris. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. One comment we have is from I Hate Spiders on the forums. It says, something I've wondered about... Hold on, I gotta sneeze. She doesn't say that in the comment. <laughs> Cat's just making up her own comments at this point. Yeah. Uh, fixing my hair, fixing <laughs> my hair. Noah just likes to feed the editor's <laughs> stuff to put at the end of the, at the show. I mean, that's really, that's really what this is. No. Who are the editors? Uh, John and Patrick. Uh, hats off to you guys for handling this show. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> for handling Noah. <laughs> <laughs> what? You're what? fixing your hair for an audio podcast. <laughs> I want to I wanna look good. Were you watching Hercules on ABC yesterday, too? No, I was actually not watching Hercules. I was making a legitimate <laughs> Greek reference. <laughs> oh, well. Well, I just... I just made a I'm jealous that you got to catch Hercules on ABC yesterday. It was fo- followed by Aladdin. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, anyway. that, that about ends our <laughs> question of the week discussion. We didn't really discuss more of that comment, though. Yeah. No, it's no, not it over doesn't. yet. It's not over <laughs> well, yet. That about, well, that about reopens our question <laughs> of the week discussion for more commentary. What's on the other side of the Dumbledore? Guys. It's a good question. Oh, that's a very good question. Um, theories and I realize you guys Noah. are all about opening the Dumbledore. It's just it's just my face. You you literally open the Dumbledore and it's just my face peeping through. Um. Creepy. <laughs> <laughs>